Clerk, do we have any announcements? Yes, thank you. The Board of Supervisors and its committees are convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The Board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows. First, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, then we will take those who are waiting on the telephone line. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak and those on the telephone should dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. If you are on your telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices that you may be using. Alternatively, you may submit written public comment by email to the government audit and oversight clerk, my, me, Stephanie Cabrera, at Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E dot Cabrera, C as in California, A, B as in Bay, R-E-R-A, at sfgov.org. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall at 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. If you submit public comment in writing, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and included as part of the official file. Finally, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of September 5th, 2023, unless otherwise stated. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Madam Clerk. And um, let's go ahead and, uh, well, actually, before we call the first item, uh, I'd like to make a motion to excuse Supervisor Chan. Please call Thank the roll on that. And on the motion to excuse Supervisor Chan, Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie I, Member Mandelman. Mandelman I, Chair Preston. Aye. Preston I, you have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. And uh, please call agenda item one. Item number one is a hearing to consider the reinvestment working groups, final governance plan, business plan, and viability study for a San Francisco Municipal Financial Corporation and final governance plan, business plan, and viability study for a San Francisco public bank and recommend the, that the Board of Supervisors accept the RWG's proposed plan and requesting the Local Agency Formation Commission to report. As noted on the agenda, the Chair may entertain a motion to prepare a motion in committee to accept the proposed subject plan. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item and are viewing remotely should call the public call-in number scrolling across your screen and enter the meeting ID when prompted. If you are already on hold, please dial star three to be added to the speaker line. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, let me, uh, be before we hear from presenters, I, I wanna say a few words about this. Um, this has been quite a road to get here um, and uh, very excited um, that the reinvestment working group has completed it's work that we are here today with the long-awaited, much-discussed and analyzed um, plan for uh, public banking in San Francisco. Um, so I want to say, say some thanks to some folks um, and uh, before we get started and, and maybe um, give a little context and then we'll hear from presenters um, and, and uh, have a discussion about some of the details. Um, so let me start by thanking the Reinvestment Working Group members, um, led by Chair Kristen Evans, who is here at the mic, welcome, uh, Vice Chair Fernando Marti, um, and members of the Reinvestment Working Group, uh, Sylvia Chi, Michelle Pierce, Rafael Morales, uh, 
uh, Jennifer Finger, Elizabeth Dwyer, uh, Anna Van Degna from the Controller's Office, and Amanda Freed uh, from the Treasurer's Office. Um, I, I cannot overstate the amount of time and energy and brain power that these folks have dedicated to this task um, over the last 18 months to create the governance plan, business plan, and, and uh, viability study around a San Francisco Municipal Finance Corporation, um, otherwise known as an MFC, um, and a San Francisco Public Bank, and we'll hear more details on that soon. Um, but the thanks go beyond the reinvestment working group members, um, and I want to specifically acknowledge um, the crucial role uh, that LAFCO has played um, in developing these plans. Um, and with us today uh, from LAFCO, Jeremy Pollack, Executive Officer of LAFCO, and Khalid uh, Samurai, Policy Analyst uh, to the Reinvestment Working Group. Thank you both for your tireless work on that. Um, the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition, uh, who really has led efforts here in San Francisco for, uh, to get us on track, not just to change state law and work with the California Banking uh, public Banking Coalition, uh, but also to move things forward locally. Um, they uh, have really been an incredible uh, resource to the city and advocacy uh, group uh, to get this moving. Um, the reinvestment group, working group, and I, they may acknowledge folks themselves, um, but I, I want to acknowledge the exemplary work of HRNA uh, advisors um, that that provided a lot of the technical expertise uh, to the working group, particularly uh, Giacomo Bagarella and Andrea Batista Schlesinger, um, the consultants who've been who've been working on this, um, uh, and also Gary Finley of the Finley Group and uh, Susanna uh, Razo with uh, Contigo Communications. Um, these folks brought a lot of expertise to the table. Um, in really looking at how other jurisdictions around the world have successfully launched public banks and how we could do it here in San Francisco. And um, also want to acknowledge the clerk's office, particularly Angela Cavillo, um, uh, Elisa Samara, and uh, Stephanie uh, Cabrera for, for all of their support along the way. And, and last but not least, I just want to acknowledge that this, uh, you know, politicians come and go, and sometimes we... Um, hand the baton from one to the next, and that is certainly the case with a long-term project like creating a public bank. So I want to acknowledge uh, former supervisor John Avalos, who really got things rolling in City Hall around public banking, um, followed by former supervisor Sandy Feuer, uh, who worked tirelessly on this with the Public Bank Coalition, uh, and also our current city attorney, David Chu, who, when he was wearing a different hat in the California Assembly, uh, was actually the lead author on the legislation uh, which paved this exact path for creating, under state law, a public bank, uh, the path that we are now on. Um, add to that list Ben Rosenfield at the Controller's Office uh, for all his assistance, um, and also specifically want to recognize our treasurer, Jose Cisneros, who's been an essential partner in thinking through how we can do this, not just through uh, his staff's participation on the reinvestment working group, uh, but through his direct engagement with our office. Um, and there is obviously, uh, when, if and when we have a public bank, uh, the treasurer of city and county of San Francisco is absolutely essential to 
to, to implementing that work and making this a success. So we appreciate his partnership uh, in thinking through this. So I, I will, uh, I, I'm gonna hold off on a lot of comments on the importance of public banking uh, because I imagine the folks who are here from the public as well as some of the presenters will We'll talk about that. Um, I want to make clear what we are and are not doing today uh, for both the public and for my colleagues on the committee uh, and, and, and others who are watching this. Uh, we are not adopting an ordinance that will create a public bank tomorrow. We are uh, hearing from and accepting uh, the plans and recommendations from the body that the Board of Supervisors created, the Reinvestment Working Group, to bring us a plan. So we will hear that plan. Uh, I believe this will set us on a path uh, to creating a public bank in San Francisco, but that will take legislative action and all uh, leaders in City Hall working together to figure out the details on the structure and the details on the funding and so forth. Um, but at the end of the day, um, we remain in, in, in in my office, and I, I know from others on this board, committed to working with advocates, working with uh, all city leaders to create a municipal bank in the city and county of San Francisco. I also personally would like to see the city and county of San Francisco be the first city in the nation to create a public bank. And the good news and the bad news on that front is Others are interested, so that's good. Other cities uh, are, are looking into this, um, but in some ways we're at the head of this pack, so I'd like to continue uh, the momentum and make San Francisco uh, the first city with uh, a public bank. I, I think that the key things that you'll hear about are the opportunities that a municipally owned bank offers to invest in the three principal areas um, that this plan would focus a public bank on, and that is funding affordable housing in San Francisco, funding small businesses in San Francisco, uh, and green infrastructure here. And we will hear more about uh, what that means and, uh, and, and the details of how we would do that, but I think it is important that we situate this in the time that we're in, where a lot of us in City Hall are talking about economic recovery and what that looks like here in San Francisco. The pandemic has presented a dire economic reality for our city. We're just getting through the budget process where we have uh, been staring at these uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in deficits. We know uh, that the impacts of those kind of deficits and the economic struggles in our city are not felt equally. We know that the, the inequities in our city that exist, particularly along racial and socioeconomic lines, have really been exacerbated by the pandemic, and that if we don't have proactive strategies stretching years into the future, um, that we will see further inequality in how resources are invested in, in our city. So uh, communities of color in particular have been disproportionately impacted by uh, the health and economic ramifications of the pandemic and have been um, impacted uh, disproportionately by the failures of uh, private for-profit banking in our country and in our city with uh, a, a history 
of uh, redlining and other practices that have targeted communities of color and one of the many reasons uh, that public banking is absolutely uh, essential. And, you know, and I'll just note, and this is something my colleague has just joined us, uh, Supervisor Walden noted in his recent uh, introduction around banks closing uh, in his district, we've seen Mission Local reporting on, uh, on, on banks closing in, in the Bayview, um, as well as um, recent settlements by private banking, by Wells Fargo, over um, a, a settled a billion dollar class action lawsuit that stemmed from uh, uh, racist practices like redlining and wrongful foreclosure and predatory loans. Um, so there, there's really a need to make sure that we're actually serving the needs of our community uh, through how we invest uh, capital in San Francisco and I'm very excited uh, at the possibilities uh, of having a robust public bank uh, here as we try to chart a path to uh, economic recovery in San Francisco. So with that, I know we have uh, some presenters um, today, and uh, I think we will, I believe, um, Mr. Samurai or, or Chair Evans, who is starting us off? Chair Evans, welcome. Thank you for all your tireless work. The floor is yours. Thank you, uh, supervisors, for the time today to deliver what has been the culmination of months of work by our nine-member body. Um, there are a couple of other members of the San Francisco Reinvestment Working Group in the audience today, including Fernando Marti and Amanda Freed from the San Francisco Treasurer's Office. Um, there are also members in the audience from the San Francisco uh, Banking Public Banking Coalition, um, and um, uh, I'm sure they will be um, making public comment here uh, later uh, after our presentation. Um, I'm just here to kick us off, and I'll hand it off to our um, uh, uh, policy experts to give you the, the fundamental details of the plan. Um, but the need for the San Francisco Public Bank is more urgent than it ever has been. Economic disparity, the lack of affordable housing, and climate change are all crises that large for-profit banks have in various ways contributed to functionally preserving and expanding capital for the wealthiest individuals and corporations at the detriment of our local community. For-profit banks' um, mandate is to generate the largest corporate profits for their shareholders. That's left many small businesses, entrepreneurs, and affordable housing developers without access to critical capital that they need to do and scale their work. Here on slide three, we see our timeline uh, to, that took us to today. At our last meeting in May, the San Francisco Reinvest Reinvestment Working Group voted unanimously to deliver you these, three, these two reports um, that were uh, re requested by your 2021 ordinance. Uh, it is the business case and plan for San Francisco to urgently respond with an essential tool, a public bank, a more an efficient an effective way for the city to fund and manage lending, loans to underserved communities, underserved by for-profit banks in the areas of affordable housing, construction, small business lending, and those green banking opportunities which will deploy new community-based solutions to climate change. Next slide, please. Following the passage of California Assembly Bill 857, sponsored by our now city 
uh, attorney David Chu in 2019. Um, municipalities in California are now authorized to create public banks. Following uh, the Board of Supervisors' passage of your ordinance to form the San Francisco Reinvestment Working Group in July 2021, LAFCO convened the working group with nine members. Next slide, please. Uh, with me today are my colleagues from the Reinvestment Working Group and our consult consultants, HRNA Advisors, Finley Group, and Contigo Communications, and LAFCO Policy Analyst Khaled Samari to present our work. I'll now turn it over, over the mic to Yakimo from HRNA. Who is joining uh, Thank remotely. you, Chair Evans. Yeah, thank you, Chair Evans. Can you all hear me properly? Yes, we can. Welcome. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so before uh, my colleagues talk more about what the public bank does uh, and really touch upon those critical elements of lending for affordable housing, small businesses and green investments, I will talk briefly about what the public bank is, because the uh, creation of a, a public bank means that the city of San Francisco would create an entity that is supposed to serve the public interest and serve the communities of the city. And therefore the entity itself should be structured to uphold the values of those communities and act in accordance to them. So the reinvestment working group designed the plans for both the municipal finance corporation and the public bank to be uh, professionally run, transparent and accountable to uh, San Franciscans. Again, this uh, there's really an importance of uh, competent management teams with financial expertise, with oversight from San Francisco residents and independent of political authority. As stewards of public funds, the uh, management team and others involved in the governance of these entities will uphold financial industry best practices and rigorous financial management. The, this uh, structure was informed by the city's values, feedback from federal and state regulators, feedback from members of San Francisco's communities, global best practices in our team's experience in corporate bank and other organizational governance. And I want to spend just a little bit of time uh, going through the mission and principles because I think these really embody what these institutions seek to accomplish and the benefits that they would deliver to the city of San Francisco. So the mission of these entities uh, would be to promote an economy that upholds equity, social justice, and ecological sustainability, and they would do so through following a number of principles. First being public ownership by remaining publicly owned entities that reinvest profits in support of their mission. Local control, operating for the benefit and on behalf of the communities of San Francisco, with meaningful representation and input from community stakeholders, especially those from underinvested communities and partner and other partner institutions that operate at the local level. Community wealth building to promote community ownership and community wealth building. Public welfare and restorative finance, as Chair Evans talked about, sort of the uh, impact that uh, for-profit and predatory financial institutions have had, and therefore it's the purpose of the institutions that San Francisco would be creating to enhance the welfare of all of the people of San Francisco, and especially communities underserved by mainstream commercial banks, 
that have suffered from the historical legacy of wealth disparities and harmful social, economic, and environmental practices. Moreover, these entities would be designed to cooperate with existing community institutions and organizations, such as credit unions, community development, financial institutions, um, and other similar organizations to uh, partner with them on making and issuing financial products and services, because we know that those institutions are the ones that are already uh, addressing some of these needs in San Francisco and with support from the public bank, they can do even more. Accountability and transparency to ensure democratic oversight, accountability and transparency in operations, integrity and independence to prevent corruption, self-dealing and conflicts of interest and maintaining rigorous oversight of governance, operational lending activities, professionalism to operate based on overall financial expertise and subject matter, matter expertise, uh, acknowledging indigenous rights as well and to act within a reparations framework to honor these institutions' presence on alone land, protect sacred sites, support indigenous land trusts, and uphold indigenous peoples' right to free prior and informed consent. And finally, harm avoidance to make sure that these institutions refrain from investing in sectors that exacerbate negative socioeconomic and environmental outcomes, including predatory lending, fossil fuels, tobacco, firearms, weapons, prisons, and other such businesses that do not align with the city's or the institution's values. To accomplish of this, all this, if you could go to the next slide, uh, our, the, our team working with the reinvestment group proposes a two-tiered governance model um, where the first tier consists of the oversight commission, which provides for community oversights, establishes policy guidelines and overall direction for the board, but does not make day-to-day -day management decisions. And the goal of the Oversight Commission is for it to be con composed of an inclusive and diverse mix of stakeholders from across San Francisco, from affordable housing communities, small business communities, environmental justice communities, and others who can inform the strategy and vision for the bank and make sure that it is held accountable to its mission and principles that I just described. And then below the Oversight Commission, there would be a traditional organizational board that over oversees day-to-day -day operations, selects the management team, and oversees the execution of the business plans. And this board would have fiduciary duties. Then uh, under the board, there would be a sort of typical management team consisting primarily of a chief executive officer, chief credit officer, and uh, other personnel who serve to issue loans, manage risk, manage personnel, and make sure that uh, these entities are operating effectively. And this structure, as I mentioned, was informed by global best practices and, and the team's expertise, and we'll be happy to explore it in greater detail if uh, the supervisors wish. So I'll pass it on to my colleagues for the next slide. Thank you. Good morning, supervisors. My name is Susana Razo with Contigo Communications, a small LBE firm focused on community engagement. And I'm happy to be here, also a San Francisco native. Just felt I had to add that. Um, what we did, what we were tasked with doing is engaging community, diverse community um, representatives to help inform or help gauge the need for a public bank. We wanted to understand how private banks, if they are adequately serving 
affordable housing tenants and homeowners, affordable housing projects, our small businesses, both LBEs and non-LBEs, and organizations that promote uh, and build green infrastructure. We wanted to validate the need for an MFC or public bank. And so we engaged with a range of organizations. You see the numbers of organizations listed here. We actually spoke to 10 affordable housing developers as well as additional, I think three additional organizations that work in advocacy for affordable housing. We spoke to 10 small businesses. These were diverse businesses, I would like to add, ethnically diverse, as well as from across our supervisorial, real, supervisorial districts, so not representing just one or two. We really wanted to have the information gathered be reflective of the experience of organizations, businesses across San Francisco. And we um, engaged seven organizations working in the green energy space, as well as other uh, departments from the city and county of San Francisco. And, and what we did was we met with them in one-on-one -on -one informational meetings, as well as in focus groups that really helped to gather feedback for um, this, this proposal that's, or this um, plan that's before you. And what we learned is that while these entities are very different, an affordable housing organization a developer is very different from a small business, for example. They were having really similar experiences in um, the banking industry. They reported, they all reported having challenges with outdated underwriting rules. And when I forgot to mention, we also talked to CFIs. Cannot, cannot forget that. And I'll speak to um, some of what we heard there as well. We heard that there are challenges with underwriting rules. Um, they are outdated and really don't take into account all of the realities of the organizations that are applying. Um, for example, gig economy workers are not allowed to report that income as income when applying for first-time homebuyers loans. We heard that revolving loans are very hard to get, but essential for businesses during seasonal fluctuations, as well as during startup costs when projects are starting. And of course, we heard as well challenges with meeting loan guarantees. I can't do justice to all that we heard in our uh, meetings here today in a short time, but I do want to share with you a few quotes that will bring those voices into the room here today. Construction financing is very expensive. What is inefficient is that we are dealing with commercial line loans and have to figure out how to pay for a whole portfolio of risks that a bank is managing. We are looking for a, the public bank to find ways to make it cheaper. Access to capital is one of the major stumbling blocks, and one thing is that banks can't and don't give loans under 150000 In Chinatown, we are our own little village. Those small mom and pop businesses did not know how to get on the web for PPP loans, and the information was not in language. Many people fell through the cracks. My bank doesn't have tellers, and they don't cross-train workers, which is stupid. And they just closed the branches during the pandemic. Asian Inc. stepped up, and they provided the translators and technical assistance needed to help our small businesses apply. We heard very similar feedback from um, folks who were um, engaged by MEDA in the mission. Small businesses are inundated with information 
If you are using Square for small businesses, they have your information, and they are targeting you for products, high-interest products. Businesses are told they qualify for a loan, so they, don't get, so they get over the fear of qualification. And what are the mechanisms to support the construction of five to 10 units or co-op ownership? High-density projects have been prioritized. Where do they get the financing? And last but not least, from a CFI, de-risking, that is what we need. The products need to evolve with the times. The gig economy is evolving, but we are still trying to loan with a 1970s model and values. Again, I can't do justice to all the voices that we heard from. This is a small swath of the breadth and depth of information that we gathered. I point you to the community engagement report that has been submitted together with the plan before you today. And I leave you and say thank you um, for this project. For It has been an honor to serve um, on the project and help inform the business plan that's before you today. Thank you. Thank you for all your work on this. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, I am Gary Findlay, and I am a uh, banking attorney and consultant that is the banking and regulatory consultant on this project. I have worked on the creation of over 100 community banks during my career, uh, but this is the first public bank uh, that we worked on. I echo the comments of Chairman Evans, as well as my colleagues uh, Giacomo and Susanna, with regard to their support of this particular project. Over the past year, we've worked on the business plan, viability study, and governance plan for the MFC and public bank that could be the basis for an application to various regulatory agencies for the creation of a public bank. There is not a public bank in existence in the United States that is FDIC insured. So the project is creating something which, while much needed, is somewhat challenging from a standpoint that we have never seen something like this before. It is exciting to do this kind of work. We have been working on a plan that meets the needs of the community, addresses the concerns of various groups affected by the entity, uh, and also fulfills the requirements of the various regulatory agencies who would be involved in the creation of the public bank, which includes the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and possibly the Federal Reserve. Mr. Finley, sorry to cut you off. I just want to check if you are need these slides to still be showing where the public is looking at a slide that I think was previously referenced, not at you. There we go. We've corrected it. Let us know if you need to go back to the presentation. Please continue. He's got it. Um, this first slide that uh, uh, I wanted to show uh, talks about the using of the, res the resources of San Francisco to fund loans to affordable housing, small business, and green energy, and work closely with local community banks, credit unions, and CDFIs to extend credit in these critical and important areas. It is intended that through participation lending and working together, the MFC and public bank will be able to utilize the resources of local financial institutions to maximize these programs within San Francisco. Uh, within the plan itself, there's a detailed description with regard to all the types of lendings uh, programs that would be utilized. 
The second slide deals with the financial plan, which focuses on the initial operation of the MFC with assets growing to almost 90 million, almost 60 million in loans by year three and transitioning to a bank with assets in year eight of 319 million and loans of 247 million. The capital would start at 20 million, growing to 59.5 million at the start of the public bank. The additional funding to support the loan programs would be initially notes and investments with the opportunity to bring in deposits from various sources when a public bank is chartered. It is not intended that the public bank be funded by consumer type deposits, but rather from municipalities and other groups to support the mission and vision and also from others that are looking for CRA-related credit. I must distinguish between an MFC, which is non-regulated and no deposits, and a public bank that is regulated by the DFPI, the FDIC, and possibly the Federal Reserve. But as proposed, the plan is to initially start with an MFC folding into a public bank over time. The work that has been presented to you identifies the needs and opportunities addresses the lending products and funding sources, how the MFC and public bank will be managed, the necessary controls and systems for operation, and the financial models that demonstrate a reasonable promise of success within a reasonable period of time. I must emphasize that the business plan and the supporting documents presented are fluid and will change over time, but this sets the process for moving forward with the establishment of a public bank. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I believe, last but not least, Mr. Samurai. Hello, Supervisors. Uh, great to be back. So now that you're going to accept this wonderful plan, what happens next? And uh, a few things are happening right now. Um, well, the first thing is we're going to start a Municipal Financial Corporation, which is uh, the MFC, that's step one entity. Uh, right now, we're working with the City Attorney's Office and obviously the Board of Supervisors to find the most feasible way to incorporate the working group's vision into the government of San Francisco. We're also at LAFCO pursuing a variety of funding streams um, uh, under the Green Bank Financing Project, an MOU between SFPUC and LAFCO, designed to uh, do a few things, um, secure funding from um, outside sources to start the, uh, public, uh, the MFC, uh, or sorry, investigate those sources, including um, the uh, Inflation Reductions Act, Greenhouse uh, Gas Reduction Fund, um, state grants, philanthropy, and um, other sources. We're also um, currently um, getting more feedback from uh, those federal regulators. So we met with them initially uh, throughout in this uh, process. That's where we got um, some of the information that went into the governance plan and other areas. We also sent them the final plans for further feedback um, and uh, Finally, at LAFCO, we're also going to be coordinating uh, the green finance work, bringing um, together various departments that work on this issue, um, make sure we have cohesion across the city. And that is it for our presentation. Happy to take questions, supervisors. Thank you so much for the presentations. Um, and, uh, and again, for all the work. I did have just a, a, a few questions, and then uh, I wanted to leave some space for my colleagues if there are any questions, and obviously hear from the public as well. Um, just a, a couple things. One is the, um, so the structure of an MFC first um, 
and then potentially folding that into a public bank. Just, just to clarify, um, and particularly for the public, because I think that we throw around terms like MFC, I don't think anyone is familiar with what that even is and what that looks like. And it, it, my understanding is the primary difference is that in order to be a full uh, public bank and, and basically accept deposits, become a depository bank, we need FDIC approval. That's correct. Right. And, and the, F, the MFC will be able to do some level of participatory lending has been, has been described, will really help boost up um, and, and hopefully streamline and consolidate some of the, the lending, some of which the city already does. Uh, other uh, you know, could be additional lending through the MFC. But that a, a part of the MFC is also um, to be in a position where at the end of that projected three years, we have proof of concept, proof uh, that the, this entity can operate without a loss, in fact, earning you know, uh, a quote-unquote profit, and that all of that is, will be helpful and part of the basis for establishing um, FDIC approval. I want to make sure I am conceptually getting that right, but also if there's anything you want to add to that, um, just so that we can make sure everyone has a an understanding of why this two-phased process and how an MFC might eventually fit into the formation of a public bank. Absolutely. So uh, the MFC, Municipal Financial Corporation, is a term of art. Um, the way to think of it is it's something like a green bank. You've heard green banks all across the country. This is something like it. We're not calling it a green bank, though. Um, and so the MFC is uh, this step one entity. It only issues loans. Um, it does, it's non-depository. It does not accept deposits. And the reason we're doing this for three years is the FDIC is unlikely to give um, a brand like a city that's tr trying to start a bank for the first time insurance um, out the gate. So we need to prove concept. We need to have to um, have some, a positive track record that shows we are responsible and able to um, turn a profit by um, this time frame. And so what we asked from our consultants was what's the least we could start with to prove this concept to, to turn a profit by the end of year three. And um, this is what, uh, this is the plan that you saw today. Um, it also uh, is in our interest as a city to start that step one entity that it's a, it's a nonprofit um, organization. That's what the MFC would be because it might make us more competitive for those EPA funds, the, uh, the federal grants that I mentioned earlier um, that are uh, coming out um, in phase one now and in the second phase uh, early next year. So even, even that step one entity, what we're trying to do, that MFC, even that is being supported at a federal level and there's um, interest in opening these kinds of entities all across the country. But what we want in San Francisco, sorry, is to go further. Once we have that step one entity and we prove concept, we get all this regulatory approval and then we have a full public bank that can accept deposits, grow, and support all these different uh, areas that the city needs. Thank you, uh, that's really helpful. And, um, and just wanna highlight one of the things you said around the, the federal funds and, and I think the tension we all feel of obviously wanting to get everything right and do this in a collaborative way that's unifying and it's been great to see the growing consensus uh, for moving forward with this. At the same time, we have some opportunities, right, with the, particularly around green infrastructure, with federal funds 
um, that we don't want to lose, right? And, and we want to be in a position where the MFC is, is up and hopefully is up and running as either that opportunity or other federal, uh, federal funds become available that we actually have uh, in, in the, the entity up and running in time to, to really compete for and, and request some of those funds. Um, so, I, and I don't know if you, you know, I know the first tier is rolling out. I don't know if we have any uh, insight into to how much may be available and on what time frame. Yes, uh, Supervisor. So the a notice of, for opportunity for funding came out um, last week. And uh, like I said, it's gonna be dis this funding is going to be distributed in two phases. The total amount is $27 billion. The amount for these uh, lending entities that I talked about is $6 billion. That phase one is, as I said, uh, starting already. Phase two, where it's distributed regionally, will happen um, probably early next year. And right now, it seems like the limit per application for that $6 billion dedicated to entities like this is around $10 million each. So that's what we're essentially trying to be com mo the most competitive for is that, that full amount and uh, hopefully even more. Great, thank you. And then um, another question, I don't know, Mr. Samurai, if this is for you or someone else on, on the team, whoever has the most knowledge of this, feel free to grab the mic. Uh, can you speak to the experience of the, the only public bank that we, that we have in this country in, in North Dakota, which is a state public mm -hmm. bank? Um, just at a real practical level, what that, we don't need the whole history of the North Dakota Public Bank, but I do think the experience during the pandemic in particular in support of, of small businesses, what, what, would, what, was, what were they able to do by having that vehicle up and running? Uh, because I think it may offer some, some insight into some of the potential here. Mm -hmm. So the Bank of North Dakota was um, initially started to help small farmers and still has a new farmer lending program. <laughs> we actually invited members of the Bank of North Dakota to come meet with the working group, and we learned about the history of the Bank of North Dakota and how it's evolved over time to be now a, a bank with more than $10 billion in assets and close to $200 million in annual profits. Um, the Bank of North Dakota, um, during the pandemic, um, was, was able to essentially uh, get money into the hands of small businesses um, during the peak time of shelter in place in that phase one of the PPP one loan process. That led to a situation where they had more um, uh, small businesses uh, per capita um, receiving PPP funds in that first phase than any other state in the country. In fact, twice, practically twice, the amount of loans per capita than California. And if I could just um, add something to that, Supervisor. Um, when we spoke to those individuals from, uh, one was, he ran a community bank, worked with the Bank of North Dakota, the other one was on the advisory board. Um, what we learned from them was uh, really, um, the way banking works in North Dakota is different from the way it works in San Francisco. When a local bank in North Dakota is approached by a potential um, individual who wants a loan, they immediately loop in the state bank, the Bank of North Dakota, so that um, they work together. If the loan is for the benefit of North Dakota, the Bank of North Dakota is interested. That is its, its, its uh, mission. And so, uh, 
I want to bring back, a, um, uplift something Susanna said earlier, which is banks in San Francisco don't loan less than $100,000. And so if you're a business that needs le less than that, um, you're not going to uh, be able to get it. Because, and it's not nefarious for the most part, um, certainly is sometimes, but it's, it's that uh, for a single loan officer, the amount of time it takes to do a, a one loan for $10,000 is the same as one loan for a million dollars. And so if, if you're a bank, if you're a financial institution and you're trying to maximize your profits, that's what you're going to do. What we need in San Francisco is um, an entity that is focused on providing, filling in that gap that com private commercial banks are not interested in. Thank you very much. Um, and unless we have uh, comments or questions from colleagues at this time, we'll go ahead and open up public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number one? Please line up along the curtain wall to your right. Remote public call-in members, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. To ensure everyone has the opportunity to speak, each speaker has been allotted two minutes. For those in the chamber, the lectern has a visual timer and you will hear two chimes. The first chime is to alert you that you have 30 seconds left and should begin wrapping up your comments. And the second is to notify that your time has elapsed. Call in speakers, please listen for the clerk to notify you when your two minutes has elapsed. Also for those in the chamber, please note board rule 1.3.1 prohibits applause or vocal expressions of support or opposition. Thank you. Welcome, you may proceed. Good morning, members of the committee. My name is Charlie Shamas with the Council of Community Housing Organizations. A little more than a year ago, this board unanimously approved the Reinvest SF legislation that jump-started this process. I wanted to thank you, Supervisor Preston, for your leadership and Supervisor Walton for your early support and really getting the balls in motion with our former assembly member, David Shuda, introduce AB 857. I'd also like to acknowledge Preston Kilgore of your staff, Supervisor Preston, and Khaled Samari and Jeremy Pollock of LAFCO, um, both worked very diligently to operate, operationalize the community's vision for a public bank in San Francisco. Over this last year, nine incredible leaders on the reinvestment working group have brought a very diverse set of skills and perspectives and are united in one thing, a love for San Francisco and a desire to, sit, to see the city do its best to rise to the fiscal challenges facing our city. The business and governance plan before you today understands the need to get the institution right, has asked the right questions, has developed the right models, and charts a pathway to build an institution that truly reflects the values we have been fighting for. The structure establishes significant safeguards, oversight, checks and balances, and accountability to safeguard the public interest. It also ensures that the Board of Directors represents the diverse needs of the many stakeholders in our city, while at the same time is insulated from political influence. A public bank can help chart a path for our economic recovery, strengthening small businesses, our neighborhood-based economy. It can be a game changer for our city's affordable housing challenges, financing projects that create good paying and union jobs, financing renewable energy, environmental justice, and public infrastructure projects. Currently, San Francisco pays Wall Street banks around $800,000 a year in transaction fees. We also pay more than $68 million a year in bond debt. With a public bank, we can be investing that money in our communities while growing resources for the city as a whole. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. 
Hey, good morning. My name is Misha Steyer, a District 7 resident, and I'm with the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition. Um, really want to thank the Reinvestment Working Group and the Local Agency Formation Commission. Um, it's been a privilege watching this process in action. Um, I really just wanted to emphasize this is a practical and uh, pragmatic plan, um, pretty staid, conservative. Hyper or super capitalized, I think, is the level of funding um, we're going for. Uh, and it's put together by professionals for an independent bank operated by professionals. Um, I feel like this is a policy. It's not uh, a matter of progressive or moderate. It's just kind of common sense. And I hope the San Francisco equivalent of bipartisan. Uh, public banks aren't a novel concept. There are over 900 entities of its type in the world uh, with tens of trillions of assets in their control. Um, and I really just want to encourage you to do the work of seeing this through. Uh, as we've heard, you know, the public bank uh, is a potentially critical tool to meeting the crises we're currently facing, uh, but it's been a privilege to work on and, and be pushing for something that's really uh, a long-term vision. Um, it's rare that we get to work on something to prevent crises, right? And I just really encourage you to um, keep this going, to really, this is a legacy you're building for the city of San Francisco, for all of us, if you, uh, you know, we're 100 years past the Bank of North Dakota and it's still there running strong. This is something, um, what you're a part of is uh, historic. And I just, I had a cute line I wanted to use. Um, I really am excited about the prospects of the positive feedback loop, this kind of lending, keeping our tax money in our city and our economy. Um, instead of a doom loop, how about we create a bloom loop? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Good morning, supervisors. My name is Fernando Martí. I was vice chair of the Reinvestment Working Group. It was an honor to work with this group. It seems like a long time coming to be here. Back in 2010, I was staffing a citywide community congress that was convened by the Council of Community Housing Organizations and the University of San Francisco, and Public Bank was one of the key pieces that came out of that. So here we are 13 years later uh, in front of you, two task forces, a lot of work from the Board of Supervisors, the work of the task forces, our consultant team. Um, and what you have before you, a governance plan and a business plan for both the public bank and the MFC. Um, the time, I think, right now is critical with the green financing, with the green, what we've been calling a green bank, but really it's a green financing mechanism to roll out the MFC and make those funds available um, and, to not, and to take advantage of this opportunity. I want to end with a comment on a letter that the Reinvestment Working Group added to uh, the work of the consultants, which was a recommendation that we work towards uh, a firmer governance structure with the oversight committee that is beyond advisory, actually has oversight over policy. Uh, we know that's tough, um, getting through the regulatory agencies to understand uh, that type of oversight, which is common in most public banks, is going to be an ongoing process. Um, but I think it is something that we need to keep in mind and work toward as this proof of concept develops from an F MFC to a public bank uh, to something that has true public policy oversight. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments today. Next speaker.
Good morning, members of the committee. My name is Jasmine Poyawa, I'm Senior Attorney at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights of the San Francisco Bay Area. We're a member organization of the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition. I'm speaking in support of the San Francisco Public Bank Plan and also to thank everyone involved, especially the members of the Reinvestment Working Group for producing this plan. The plan is forward thinking, reasonable, thoughtful, exciting, and necessary to address the social ills that plague the city. Through my work at Lawyers Committee alone, I've seen how the pandemic has disproportionately harmed local small businesses owned by people of color. Many of them are struggling to obtain relatively small business loans to pay for back rent and other pandemic-related expenses, ultimately resulting in evictions, business closures, and in some cases, some of these business owners leaving San Francisco due to the loss of their livelihood. In the next decade, we could see the bank grow to channel hundreds of millions of dollars toward helping small businesses and its other goals of affordable housing and ushering the city into a carbon neutral future. This will benefit our clients and have ripple effects in the city and the state as other major cities are looking to San Francisco as a model. San Francisco has the chance to set the standard for public banks in the state of California we have the opportunity to help usher a new future that will prioritize people over profits and create better pathways for the city to prioritize racial, economic, and environmental justice. For these reasons, please approve the public bank plan as is. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good morning. My name is Rick Gerling. Uh, I'm a member of the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition Leadership Group, and I also am the uh, communication director of the California Public Banking Alliance. Uh, today is the consequence of many years of work by public banking activists in San Francisco and throughout California. It has been made possible by AB 857, legislation co-authored by our city attorney, David Chu, who worked with public banking advocates from all over California to get it passed in 2019 by the California legislator and legislature and signed by Governor Newsom. As an economics teacher who retired from Lowell High School six years ago, I put much effort along with many others into making public banking become a reality. Public banking is overwhelmingly popular. Everyone who I mention it says it's a great idea. The Board of Supervisors voted unanimously to pass Reinvest in San Francisco. Today's Chronicle has an excellent article documenting the benefits of public banking. As someone who has studied banking for the past six years, I would like to speak to the need for public banking as a remedy for the recurrent banking crises that we face, most recently with the shuttering of the doors of SVB and First Republic which required billions of bailout money to rescue deposits of those private, profit-seeking banks. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> we need a public bank to safely manage the city's receipts and use them for the benefit of residents badly in need of affordable housing, climate crisis mitigation, and small business support. I emphasize safety because unlike corporate banks, that can collapse overnight when spooked wealthy depositors close their accounts, bank runs will not threaten public banks. Furthermore, because a public bank is accountable to the public, it will not be tempted by super profits from speculation 
and instead will make patient investments in long-term benefits to our communities. I urge you to send the uh, well-thought-out plans for public banking uh, for adoption by the full board. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Max Margolis. I'm a San Francisco resident. I live in the outer sunset. And I'm speaking today in favor of public banking. When I first heard about the concept of public banking, my reaction was, that's not how things already work. It just made a lot of sense. In many situations in life, we have to deal with imperfect processes and do what we can to make the best of them. But it seems to me now that we no longer need to settle for second best when it comes to our municipal banking. And honestly, describing our current approach as second best is probably charitable. As I see it, we currently store our money with private banks who get to take these considerable funds and invest them to the benefit of their shareholders in whatever ways they see fit. And they charge us for the privilege. This includes investing our money in things like fossil fuels that are contrary to the best interests of our people and government. That's like the Giants giving their money to the Dodgers to take care of. It's just crazy. What we have in front of us with public banking is an opportunity to get out of this ridiculous system we are stuck in and move to an approach that is much more fiscally and politically sound. As has been discussed, it's an approach that has been massively successful for over a century in North Dakota, a state whose total population is, I believe, actually a little smaller than San Francisco's. All that's needed now is your leadership. Please vote to accept uh, or to move forward with the public banking plan. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Good morning, my name is Ramia Sinha, law clerk with Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights of the SF and Bay Area and member of the Public Bank Coalition. I'm here today in support of the public bank. Many businesses, both small and large, have shut down at alarming rates in San Francisco since the start of the pandemic. The Westville Mall closure will affect small businesses the most. These office and business vacancies together with gentrification have horrible effects on small businesses, especially low-income small businesses. Many SF community members want to see the downtown area transformed into an area that not only has office and business units, but also has affordable housing, which will help get more folks off the streets and will eventually cut down the amount of carbon emissions from cars and public transportation by allowing these business owners to live close to where they work. The SF Public Bank will help to directly combat these issues of displacement and institutionalized oppression because its goal is to seek lending programs to promote an economy that upholds social justice, ecological sustainability, and affordable housing. The Public Bank will operate on principles of local control. For decades, private banks have been in control of capital and have contributed greatly to wealth disparities and harmful economic, environmental, social, housing, and transportation impacts. 
The public bank will combat this directly by investing for the purpose of enhancing the welfare of the people of San Francisco, rather than investing to increase the private wealth of a class of shareholders whose goals are not stemmed in social justice, sustainability, and reparations, but rather stemmed in individualized capitalism aimed to support the top 1% of wealthy individuals and private entities who do not care to give back to underserved communities and who actually don't have to give back to communities at all because these private banks are not accountable to the city. In contrast, the SF Public Bank will be held accountable to the city and will ensure that there are mechanisms for community oversight and transparency. In addition, the public bank will directly benefit communities that own it while still strengthening the lending capacity of existing credit unions and local banks by partnering rather than competing with them. We need to put all of our efforts to this public bank initiative, and this is the place to start. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Good morning. Thank you, supervisors, for your time. My name is Mitch Mankin, and I'm with San Francisco Housing Development Corporation. If you haven't heard of us, we are a community-based affordable housing developer and HUD-certified counseling agency based in the Bayview. And we're really excited about the possibilities that this public bank will unlock. Uh, I'll highlight two main areas. One is financing for affordable housing and infrastructure. As Charlie Shamas mentioned, we're paying 800K in transaction fees alone to Wall Street banks. And in addition, there are millions more that are going to Wall Street banks when we, as affordable housing developers, have to take out loans from them to finance our gap. We would, it would be much preferable to have that money invested back in the community, to have it go to the people here in San Francisco who need it. The second area I'll highlight is the availability of credit in underserved communities, like those that we serve in the Bayview and in the black community. Through our Financial Empowerment Counseling um, Center and through our Economic Development Program, we serve many individuals and small businesses who are hamstrung by their lack of access to credit. Many of the entrepreneurs in our Minding Your Your Own Black-Owned Business uh, program have really exciting ideas and just a font of creativity that's not matched by the ability to finance those ideas. A public bank could meet those needs as well as the needs of individuals uh, eventually. Uh, Especially that's important in light of the bank closures in the Bayview in the last few years. We've lost Union Bank, U.S. Bank, and Bank of America. There's only one bank remaining in the Bayview for 40,000 people. So we need the public bank to step in where the private market is not living up to what it needs to do. We have the successful example of the Bank of North Dakota, and I think if they can do it, we can too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next speaker. Good morning. My name is Nancy Haber. I'm a resident of District 7 and a member of 350 San Francisco and San Francisco Climate Emergency Coalition. I'm here today to add my voice in enthusiastic support for the plan to establish a city-owned municipal financial corporation and a San Francisco public bank. These plans represent a huge opportunity to change the ways we use our financial system to more directly benefit San Francisco and all its residents. I'm excited to support city-owned financial institutions that will make possible the vital investments in our city that must happen in a timely way and with justice. Investments in affordable housing, small businesses, and green infrastructure, including building and vehicle electrification. 
the mission-driven focus of the MFC and Public Bank in San Francisco will help ensure that our city's core values of equity and social justice, ecological sustainability, and labor rights will be maintained and strengthened. These investments will also help boost our economy. I appreciate the board's support of this concept and project and the hard work and dedication of the LAFCO staff and the reinvestment working group members and consultants in putting together the plans. These are plans worthy of San Francisco, innovative, forward-looking, and centered on justice. I encourage you to support the creation of the San Francisco Municipal Financial Corporation and the San Francisco Public Bank and move these plans forward as strongly and as quickly as possible. Thank you. Thank you for your comments today. Next speaker. Good morning, supervisors. My name is Joyce Calagos. I've lived in San Francisco since 1948. I live in District 11. I'm a core member of the Senior Disability Action, and I participate with SF Climate Action Coalition, Emergency Coalition. And my concern is one committee on senior disability action was called Mad Mob. And we know we have a crisis in the city with mental health and affordable housing. So I can see where the MFC would help uh, small businesses uh, build affordable housing for supportive housing for our mentally challenged people. And um, I'm envisioning also small businesses opening up to help uh, train mental health uh, professionals to help our, our uh, brothers and sisters who are suffering from mental illness. And uh, um, I don't know if you know, but by 2035, seniors will be out, uh, they'll be outnumbering children in the city of San Francisco. So we need affordable housing for seniors. Also, my neighbor across the way is 35, and um, they can't afford affordable housing. And also myself, I'd love to have a public bank. Please, I'm hoping I'll be alive in eight years when it'll become to fruition, because I want to be able to divest from Bank of America, because I've seen it as a Dow OC animator. I promote um, a cry, listening to the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor, and uh, we need to divest from fossil fuels, which we have, and Wells Fargo, Citibank do. So please uh, start, start that city, uh, public bank soon. Thank you. Thank you for your comments today. Next speaker. John Anderson, uh, resident since 1992 uh, in District 2, um, speaking in support of the MF MFC and the uh, research working group report. Um, the city and state are facing series of escalating crises as we start to see the effects of massive environmental degradation. Um, and at the same time, and for the same reasons, we're seeing a dwindling of resources. So it's very important that we leverage what resources we have to meet those needs. And the city bank, as said in the uh, city's climate action program, 
a Citibank is the best way to do that, to raise some capital based on, use the city's money to raise capital. So basically, as I see it, we've got to do it. We don't have a lot of options. Um, I'd also like to compliment the resource working group and LAFCO on their uh, excellent report and particularly highlighting many of the uh, green infrastructure needs. Thank you. Thank you for your comments today. Next speaker. Good morning. Um, my name is Shay Watson. I live in District 2, and I've worked on local campaigns for voting rights and protection from real estate speculation. And I worked for years at a company headquartered here in San Francisco that applied for a national bank charter and became a bank. Um, I'm here to speak in favor of San Francisco creating its own public bank. As huge banks like First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank fail around us, it's more important than ever that we create something better than these huge banks that don't support our local community and accelerate climate change by funding projects outside of San Francisco like Dakota Access Pipeline. Imagine what our city could be like if a local bank focused its service on the local San Francisco industry preserving local businesses and actualizing the funding for affordable housing. Businesses would be protected by accessible, affordable loans, and their employees would be able to afford to live in the city. And this dynamic has been highlighted by climate activists because it reduces the carbon load created by people having to commute long distances to work and creates healthier community conditions for the city. A local bank would use capital to serve local San Francisco interests and would promote the health of the city's local businesses and local communities making sure we're more resilient to capital flight that we're experiencing and all the shutdowns. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Good morning, supervisors. John Avalos from the Council of Community Housing Organizations and former supervisor from District 11. I'm not sure what's gonna come out of my mouth right now, um, but first of all, I want, to, uh, I want to thank the Reinvestment Working Group for uh, their years of work putting together the governance plan, but I also want to go back further. I want to thank uh, Jeremy Pollack, who was my former legislative aide on the Board of Supervisors, who did a lot of work building the groundwork for uh, the governance plan and years of work uh, with Cara Bytel and the Budget Analyst Office back in the day, and taken up by Supervisor uh, Sandy Feuer and the a task force that was led by uh, Malia Cohen and the treasurer, and of course, uh, Supervisor Preston, your work on keeping the rate investment working group going together. Um, the current crisis that we are in, or crises that we are facing, uh, the affordable housing crisis, uh, the climate crisis, uh, the inability of the government to work effectively, demand that we actually rebuild and create new public institutions. Uh, the public bank is one of them. And what's really unique about the public bank is that it's, it's owned by the public. It's not living for the, the profits of Wall Street corporations that we knew had uh, destroyed communities across the country and in San Francisco itself. The impetus for the public bank grew out of the Great Recession that impacted the southern neighborhoods of San Francisco uh, that were actually a continuation of the urban renewal policies that we know have affected our communities, uh, black and brown communities, 
uh, in San Francisco. So it's really important that we look at how we build a public bank uh, according to a reparations plan, a reparations framework. How do we actually build public ownership so we protect black and brown communities against all of the efforts that work to remove us from our neighborhoods, investing in public, uh, how, in support of uh, municipal housing, investing in public infrastructure, investing in neighborhoods, and making sure that small businesses are able to thrive, that we have open spaces and, and that actually help communities thrive is what this is all about. I look forward to your work moving it forward. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for all your work on this, uh, Supervisor Avalos. Thank you. Are there any other speakers in the chamber that would like to speak to this item before we go to our call-in members? Seeing no additional speakers here in the chamber, we currently have eight in the call queue with one in the speaker queue. May we please have apologies that has now jumped to three. If you are on the line and would like to speak to this item, please dial star three now to be added to the queue. Thank you. May we please have the first caller? Good morning, supervisors. My name is Rasheen Eisner from the San Francisco Tenants Union. Uh, we enthusiastically endorse the public bank plan. San Francisco has an existential need to meet our affordable housing goals and our obligation to the state. Uh, historically, we've failed to meet our housing goals, and now they are more ambitious than ever. We desperately need more mechanisms and financing to support this development. The public bank will profoundly cut costs and increase our capacity, ultimately serving as a powerful engine for affordable housing. If you wish to call yourself pro-housing, please support and implement the public bank plan. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next caller, please. Good morning. My name is Jesse Fernandez uh, with Poder San Francisco. Just a big tip of the hat to everyone who's worked so hard to get to this point. The Reinvestment Working Group, the Public Bank Coalition, HRNA, and uh, all of the folks who have been um, helping uh, guide this along. Uh, we believe that this vision um, that is outlined through the uh, governance and um, business plan is consistent with our values as a city um, and also just a critical intervention to do the necessary work of addressing unearned privilege and undeserved burden in the ongoing story of our city. Um, we've seen disenfranchised communities left out in the cold through the boom time peaks that have been enjoyed disproportionately by corporate banks as well as during the bus time valleys that we've seen uh, perpetrated by the same corporate financial institutions. Um, we believe that the diligent work underlying this business and governance plan constitute a sound, visionary, and necessary step forward for San Francisco. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. We're seeing if there are any additional callers on the line that would like to speak to this item. Again, that is star three to be added to the speaker queue. and there are no additional callers. Thank you. Public comment on this item is now closed. I want to thank everyone again for uh, all their work to, to bring this forward, and thanks to those who took the time to speak at public comment. wanted to add to my list of uh, folks to thank uh, and was referenced by uh, some of the public commenters, the budget and legislative analysts, which provided uh, essential uh, behind-the-scenes uh, support on some of the uh, analysis and research here. Um, and um, lastly, did want to just uh, specifically 
recognize and thank my legislative aide, Preston Kilgore, who has led our office's public bank work. I don't think that uh, Preston Kilgore thought when he joined our team three and a half years ago that he was going to become one of the national experts on public banking, but uh, sometimes uh, we end up doing what we hadn't planned to do, and he is uh, an invaluable uh, member of the public, uh, the, the team moving forward to public banks. I want to thank him for all his uh, incredible work um, behind the scenes on this. Um, uh, Supervisor Walton. Thank you so much, Chair Preston. And I just wanted to add my gratitude to the Reinvestment Working Group, to LAVCO, to the coalition, and for everyone who is fighting hard to bring this public bank in, into re reality. As you all know, we are suffering from bank flight, and big bank corporations are not kind to communities. And so I want to make sure that we bring this into fruition because our people and community need fiscal support, they need to be able to not be a victims of predatory lending, they need to be able to get home loans and loans for small businesses, and they need to be able to do that with rates that, of course, are amenable to making sure that they're successful versus the way our big bank corporations treat community today. So thank you all so much, and thank you for your leadership on this, Chair Preston. Thank you, uh, Supervisor Walton, um, and uh, thank you, uh, colleagues. Um, I, I, I also uh, appreciate, Supervisor Walton, your strong uh, support on this from the start. And I also want to recognize that three successive budget chairs uh, also deserve thanks. That is uh, uh, former Supervisor Haney, um, Su Supervisor Ronan when she was budget chair, and again this year, uh, Connie, uh, Supervisor Connie Chan all of whom have, um, not only the board has unanimously authorized the reinvestment working group, but all of our budget chairs and the entire board uh, and, and the mayor through the budget process have supported the consultants, the formation of this uh, plan. So hopefully this is something we can all continue uh, coming together on uh, and seeing no other names on the roster. Uh, I would like to go ahead and, and make a motion to request uh, that the clerk's office uh, prepare a resolution to accept uh, reinvestment working group's plans um, for introduction at the full board of supervisors. Thank you, and on that motion to prepare a resolution to accept the working group's plan for introduction to the full board, Vice Chair Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, I. Member Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, I. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, I. You have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Thank you, everyone. Um, Madam Clerk, please call uh, item two. Item number two is a hearing on the San Francisco Housing Authority's report on Eugene Berger Management Corp regarding the quality of services provided at the Sunnydale and Potrero Hill Hope SF sites and requesting the SFHA and Eugene Berger Management Corp to report. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment to this item and are viewing remotely should call the phone number that is scrolling across their screen and enter the meeting ID when prompted. If you are already on the line and you haven't done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, Supervisor Walton, who is here with us in committee today, is the sponsor of this hearing. So, uh, Supervisor Walton, I will turn it over to you. The floor is yours. Thank you so much, Chair Preston, and thank you to community uh, for being here this morning. 
I just want to start off by talking about some of the things that have been reported to my office, uh, what we've been hearing about Eugene Berger. Since they have taken over properties at Sunnydale and Patrell Hill, I have been receiving several disturbing reports on their quality of services, the lack of how they take care of residents in the properties, reports of excessive trash, primarily in Sunnydale, lack of inspections for vacant units, which is a major safety concern, and this is primarily in Patrell Hill, reports of Eugene Berger being unresponsive, inadequate turnaround, time for maintenance, and total disregard of resident needs, which we all know is unacceptable and does not just fall on Eugene Berger. The Housing Authority has to hold this contractor accountable. The developers play a role in the conditions at the site as well and are additionally responsible for ensuring communities benefit from their presence and their time in community. Eugene Berger Management Corporation was reportedly out of compliance in all five metrics tracked in January and failed four of the five metrics in February, according to a report from the San Francisco Housing Authority. Of the firm's contract serving public housing units in Patrell, Terrace Annex, and Sunnydale. In January and February, Eugene Berger also failed all 95 site inspections at the complex for issues like abandoned vehicles and overgrown vegetation. This is disturbing and alludes to the fact that Eugene Berger is unconcerned about the needs of our public housing residents. Even prior to receiving the results of the audit, my office had been receiving reports about Eugene Berger's neglect at both sites. Today we're going to hear from the Housing Authority, Eugene Berger and the developers, Mercy and Bridge at each site. I want to know how Eugene Berger has and is going to address all the issues founded in the report to provide services that are mandatory for the benefit of all residents. I want to know what the developers are doing to ensure that residents have the support that they need as well. When you build in San Francisco, benefits should be provided for the community. I also want to know how the Housing Authority is holding Eugene Berger accountable as it is ultimately their responsibility. We will start with hearing from Dr. Lettiju from the San Francisco Housing Authority, then hear from Eugene Berger. I believe that will be Teresa Pelger and Lance Whittingberg. Then we will hear from Bridge Housing. Uh, Susan Newfield, I believe, will be taking the lead and joined by Smith Sashir Derry and Philip Wong. And last, we will hear from Mercy Housing, which I believe Ashley Hurst will be taking the lead and I believe Doug Shoemaker is here as well. And colleagues, I think it makes sense for us to hear from all of the presenters first and then bring everyone up for questions and discussion afterward. Uh, I do want to say before um, you know, we hear presentations that you know, not all of this is the information I receive is not just received from the reports from the Housing Authority, not just from reports from newspaper. I actually spent a lot of time at both of these sites. So I hope I don't get any imaginary um, reports of what the site is or, or, or does or does not look like because I'm actually on site quite often. With that said, uh, Dr. Lettiju, thank you. Good morning, supervisors. 
I'd like to take a moment to share why there is new property management at Sunnydale and Petrel and the transition that has occurred thus far and the ongoing process of refinement that we are vigorously pursuing together with our partner, Eugene Berger Management Corporation. Oversight of our third-party property management company is my responsi responsibility, which I am highly invested and committed to ensuring that our residents reside in a place where it is safe and livable. On March 7, 2019, HUD mandated the authority to contract out its property management responsibilities to a third-party vendor in collaboration and coordination with the city and county of San Francisco as heard before the Government and Oversight Committee November of 2019 and unanimously approved by the full Board of Supervisors in December 2019 was the resolution to approve an MOU between the city and the authority to support its reorganization, including the transition to private management. The resolution outlined that as redevelopment continued, the Petrel and Sunnydale developments would be operated on an interim basis until their phased demolition. The authority issued an RFP for property management services, and after extending multiple times due to lack of submission, ultimately closed our RFP and selected Eugene Berger Management Corporation for a three-year contract. However, due to COVID-19 pandemic, the immediate transition was delayed. When the authority continued with the transition, it took a four-phase approach through a nine-month period wherein authority staff continued to work alongside EBMC to ensure that the property was maintained until over 100 building trade staff was let go as a result of the HUD mandate. After the September 30th impacts, those services could no longer be provided, and EBMC, like the city and the employers throughout the nation, struggled to hire staff. At the start of the new calendar year, the authority issued its monitoring report that outlined EBMC's progress in core service areas. This approach facilitates my ability to fully understand if outcomes are being met or not. It is also a tool to hold the authority and contractor accountable to the residents to ensure that we provide a clean, safe neighborhood. I reiterate, oversight of our third-party property management company is indeed my responsibility, and the cleanliness and the livability of the development is of utmost importance to me, to my staff. With that said, we developed a nine-month, four-phased approach to transition the properties to our contractor. During that time, the authority had 127 assigned staff, of which 43 were laborers, who primarily maintained the grounds. The remaining staff consisted of various building trades. This approach was to ensure that there was no pause in core services to residents while we continued the necessary housing quality standards work required by HUD to transition the property out of the public housing program. During the transition phase, the authority worked closely with EBMC and on-site providers to ensure residents met their new property management company that was done by door knocking, announcements, and community meetings. The authority maintained daily reoccurring meetings with EBMC and staff to ensure that long-standing policies and plans were understood and adhered to, which would ensure a clean, safe neighborhood and resident housing stability. 
These solution-driven meetings provided ongoing technical support and assistance around core services for trash hauling, vacant unit cleanups, emergency response, and landscape and curb appeal needs. During this time, the authority also supplemented significant workforce assistance until September 30th, 2022, when the authority's labor team was impacted as part of the transition. The supplemental assistant was necessary during a time when nationwide hiring was challenged. The New York Times referred to this era as the great resignation, despite efforts to hire, including residents and authority staff that have been impacted. At increased pay rates, EBMC remi um, remained understaffed, impacting operations. Since the authority no longer had staff to supplement, EBMC was required to subcontract until they could hire. Even with this request and appropriate funding, contractors were difficult to ascertain, and this only became more of a challenge with the severe storms that hit the city in early 2023. In addition, I met with the president of EBMC on multiple occasions, insisting that he visit the developments to better understand my concerns about the underperformance. The management team shifted after those meetings. Today, working with EBMC, they have staffed up providing employment opportunities to residents of public housing, cemented a list of vendors who have continuously begun to perform and provide a responsive management team, of which the more recent property manager has reflected commitment and resolve for the residents of Sunnydale and Betrayal, as evidenced in the current property status, as we have moved from the state of January into May, where we are finding it is looking better, but yet we're still not where we would like to be and where we are going to be. In the post-transition, we have moved to daily site inspections conducted by our Director of Maintenance and Sustainability, who holds over 30 years of intimate knowledge of both the Sunnydale and Petrel sites, along with our Housing Operations Director, who has a deep knowing and understanding of our residents, developments, and community relationships. Both of these individuals work closely with EBMC. During our weekly strategy meetings, we work with our contractors to find the best solutions and pathway to move towards consistency ensuring a clean, safe, beautiful neighborhood while engaging our residents in community-based organizations with professional courtesy, dignity, and respect at all times. In culmination of all this monthly work, the monitoring report, what you know as the scorecard, outlines the outcomes achieved as outlined in the contract. Finally, the inspections reflected in the monitoring reports are the authority's daily inspections of the exterior, not the interior, 100% of which passed housing quality inspections in 2022, as required by HUD and inspected by a third-party vendor. Like all homes, both sites receive recology trash service once per week. In addition to this service, because of a significant amount of trash and illegal dumping, which includes at least the majority from our residents due to bulky items and about and the remainder from outside sources, EBMC also provides daily hauling services and six full-time staff members at each site dedicated to cleaning the property. The enhanced services are the result of the authority's intentional efforts to mitigate the excess trash and illegal dumping at both sites. The cost of these enhanced efforts between October 1st, 2022 through present day is $1 million. 
I remain committed to making the site clean and livable in partnership with our contractor and residents, along with our service providers who host valuable events for our residents. Working through EBMC, conversations have begun discussing how to proactively plan around events where large amounts of trash are anticipated. EBMC further worked with Recology to audit the contract, which identified an inadequate number of bins assigned to each occupied unit. EBMC will discuss that further. We recognize that both developments are 40 to 60 years old. Even so, landscaping and curb appeal are extremely important to the authority. It's important to me, frankly. I believe it improves the quality of life for residents. Currently, EBMC's vendor provides weekly services that include vegetation clearance, mowing, blowing, edging, and debris removal along with weed abatement. You will see from the pictures provided that improvement is noticeable. However, as I said earlier, we are yet not where we need to be. And I continue to remain dedicated to ensure that we remain on that path forward um, by providing a well to provide a well-maintained development. And I, like you, Supervisor Walton, I go out to the sites. And I look at those sites personally for myself. And I come back through the door and I mandate what I'm expecting. As I'm working with my staff, that is very limited. The capacity of the housing authority itself is extremely limited. As I've noted, we have lost a host of our staff due to this mandated transition. And we are working diligently each and every single day with our contractor to refine where we need to go to ensure that our residents have a safe, livable, habitable place to live. It is extremely important to me, and I take it to heart each and every day. I wake up with this on my mind, and I go to bed with it on my mind. And while we are balancing all of these different needs that our community has, we are balancing the needs of getting out vouchers on the streets so that individuals can be housed as well. As you note, last Friday, we put 50 project-based vouchers into city gardens. So we are balancing all of the different things that are occurring in our organization, and that does not withstand that our residents are not extremely important to us. And personally, they are extremely important to me. With that said, I would add that we have a vast landscape of approximately 70 plus acres between both sites, vertical sloping and aging trees combined with record storms and waterfall. It has taken time to assess and address the onerous tasks before us and EBMC. Vehicle management on any property is essential. It includes the removal of abandoned vehicles, inoperable vehicles, stolen vehicles, and illegally parked vehicles, which all can create safety concerns and decreases beautification of our neighborhoods. Because the Sunnydale and Patrol developments include city property and housing authority property, each ownership interest determines how vehicles are managed, as you can see on the slide. It requires the assistance of the San Francisco Police Department, making calls to the city's 311 department, engagement with our community-based organizations, and most importantly, collaboration with our residents. This, 
<clears throat> I'm sorry. As of today, over 75 cars have been towed across the Sunnydale and Petrel sites. And I want to take a moment to thank the San Francisco Police Department and our site on-site providers, SFHA staff, and our contractor and residents for working collaboratively to establish a consistent process that improves the overall quality of life of our residents as it relates to this task. Approximately 35 cars are in need of vehicle management as this hearing as of this hearing, and EVMC is working on those 35 vehicles, largely at the request of fellow residents. Both Sunnydale and Petrel are developments that are part of the Hope SF redevelopment. As a promise to our community, residents will not be displaced, and where possible, residents have the option to remain on site if, relocate, if relocated during construction. Due to the on-site relocation option, that is part of our commitment to keep communities together. Vacant units are not filled with new applicants. Over the years, the authority has worked diligently to board up units using various recommended and costly methods. Regardless of the method used from the best in the industry to plywood, individuals have illegally found their way into vacant units. Additionally, law enforcement has made recommendations that ensure their own safety when boarding up and onboarding units for emergency needs. Unhoused residents remain at Sunnydale and Petrel despite efforts to refer them to the city's navigation, despite efforts for the emergency housing vouchers that we have worked diligently with and through our um, on-site providers to house these individuals as well. The authority is not immune to unhoused like the rest of the city is addressing the situation with the tools and resources it has in the most humane way possible. Although, although there in the article, it stated that um, we were not taking care of units, what I must say is there are units that are not to be ha are are not allowed to have individuals in those units. They are boarded up units. They are individuals who are illegally entering those units, and those units must remain empty. And we must not have individuals there. Therefore, we do not come through and meet individuals' needs who are illegally not on our lease. With the transition of property management, we ensure that management continues to walk the property. They have invited SFPD to walk alongside management as requested by residents and assist where necessary in efforts to empty units and board them up. We have had this discussion in the past around these vacant units and the really hard task to keep them boarded up and at the same time for the safety of our management team of our leadership team when they're out there walking the property and needing to empty out those units we require sfpd to assist us we have had our property manager actually attacked by someone illegally in the unit and it presents a major safety hazard, not just for our residents, but also for our property management staff. The housing officers at the authority have been deeply, as I said, cut 
despite the re request of residents to increase or at least maintain the previous staffing levels, since many housing officers are familiar with the residents and their families as they have worked as housing officers for many years from SFPD. And we all as city um, members and employees and legislators understand the constraints that SFPD does have, and yet they are continuing to work with us. The authority continues to be committed to ensuring the safe and stability of our residents throughout this interim period of development and beyond as we have been for our other Hope SF and RAD sites. We will continue our daily inspections. We will continue our monitoring and maintaining our presence as a strong partner in the redevelopment of Sunnydale and Petrero, following through with our promise to provide in inclusive communities to all of our residents of Sunnydale and Petrero. In the midst of the redevelopment and continued acknowledgement throughout this presentation and commitment to oversight, I am committed to ensuring our residents have a safe and livable home until our promise of a new home is realized. Here you will see depictions of Petrero and Sunnydale. You can see this first phase of Petrero is complete with the 1101 Connecticut, an example of what the future of Petrel will resemble, as we all know. And you can also see a depiction of Sunnydale Velasco as a depiction of the future of the entire development. As stated in the Board of Supervisors resolution back in 2019, the management of the properties are in the interim as the properties are redeveloped. We have seen progress since 2022 and expect further progress moving forward. Our number one, my number one priority is the residents, health, safety, and provided the pandemic, hiring limitations, property management adjustments, and time necessary to meet and establish relationships and processes with residents, the past year and a half has provided sufficient obstacles. And while it has provided su sufficient obstacles, I don't use them as an excuse because it is true, our residents deserve the very best, and I'm committed to that, I remain committed to that, and yet I must work through the systems that we have in place, and yes, it has taken us time, and I understand how that feels, because I myself, when I'm walking the properties, I want them to be in great condition. It is important to me. And that is what I work towards each and every day when I sit with my staff, when I sit with EBMC, and they, will all, they can all tell you that we have many, many calls regarding the situation. I work, I speak with our service providers because I believe that it is going to take all of us to make this work work in every facet of every area of the things that must take place on this site Dr. until Lennon, we get are, redeveloped. So thank to, you. Thank you. I was going to say, I don't mean to cut you off, but we do have more I'm presentations. And we're definitely going to bring you back up for questions. Thank you, Dr. Letterju. Uh, now we'll hear from Eugene Berger. And I believe we have... Teresa Pegler. Teresa... Pegler. Pegler. And Pegler. Lance Winberg. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, this opportunity to speak with you. Um, Eugene Berger Management Corporation um, has been engaged in the, the over, uh, daily oversight of the communities and as such are tasked with the day-to-day -day responsibilities. Um, we have committed to our primary focus to be 100% of ensuring that the residents are stably housed. 
Uh, we regularly work with um, the residents getting work orders taken care of, leases uh, executed, um, their daily needs taken care of, their parking needs taken care of, and ensure that they have good communication surrounding the, the changes in the process uh, to the project-based voucher system. That communication has been um, a personal outreach by our, our staff and our team members, both to the individual households uh, and the community as a whole. We regularly communicate with them when it comes to work orders that are needed within their home and any of their personal needs that need to be uplifted for the households, uh, including good communication surrounding residents that may be experiencing a difficulty in paying rent and or opportunities if their um, um, rent amounts uh, become burdensome, connecting them with the services to be able to have other subsidies that would be available for them. Um, we also are working diligently on all of the lease documents, ensuring everything is reviewed, uh, approved, and uh, will be satisfactory to the HUD inspections. We also, uh, our communication also incorporates flyers and mailers. Um, we do have a regular distribution of information that's distributed to the residents. When we were going through our lease execution process, we did absolutely every, pulled out all stops and did every effort to ensure that the households had the information that they needed so that they did not have an opportunity lost for their subsidy. Um, Eugene Berger had prepared, a lease agreement is only 40 pages for this prop these properties, and we ourselves had distributed over 20,000 documents, individual pages that were printed and distributed over and over in multiple languages, get, um, giving every person every opportunity, knocking on doors 16 hours a day, seven days a week, to ensure that their lease was secured for HUD and the continued subsidy. Um, additionally, we engaged with the partners on a weekly basis. Uh, Lance attends all of those meetings, um, both with the community-based partners, the um, um, police officers, uh, and that communication is consistent. Um, and when needed, our teams are there on Saturdays. Um, it's not just a Monday through Friday operation. We are, if there is a need for meeting with the PD to take care of parking, take care of towing, a special pickup because of a community event, we do address those matters. Um, when it comes to, thank you, when it comes to the progress of the trash and the illegal dumping, um, EBMC did work with Recology and we did conduct a 100% audit of all the waste containers that were on the property. EBMC assumed the contracts that were in place uh, prior to the San Francisco Housing Authority's contracts. So the types of contracts that were there, we just continued um, under, under our supervision and direct contract. Uh, with that, we were going through the bills and going through the audits and going through the properties, seeing that we were being billed for things such as um, um, Recycled materials being billed as trash, et cetera, which those things prompted a 100% audit of the trash. And while doing that, we were, it was discovered that there were many containers that didn't belong to the property, that 
were removed from the property, had migrated off the property, and there was approximately 30% at one point that were insufficient in containers for the property. We've been working diligently with Recology. Uh, they still have 141 bins to deliver to us. They are providing those bins to us. They are committed to getting them to us by the end of this month. Um, additionally, EBMC has um, engaged in, in bringing in uh, outside vendors as touched on with regards to the regular hauling and the pickup. And be, we have experienced an extraordinary level of illegal dumping to the point where we have now engaged Watchtower to also be watching for the illegal dumping on the properties. We are working with our community-based organizations to do cleanup before and after the uh, food pantry events and we've reached out and even have community engagement with property beautification days, uh, etc. Uh, our teams do walk the property every single day. We have a maintenance team that walks the property. We address the concerns. Things are documented. If it's uh, units that are appeared to be compromised that were vacant are immediately addressed and work orders are prepared. When it comes to the progress on the illegal trash and dumping, we have for you a schedule of what that tr looks like. We have both an AM and a PM schedule. Um, when it comes to Petrero, we do have one truckload that is picked up every Monday, and the truck itself has a 10,000 pound capacity of waste removal, and it is to capacity. On Monday after they pick up the Petrero, they also have a move over to Sunnydale and pick up any illegal dumping over the weekend from Sunnydale. This is after our teams have already gone through the properties both AM and PM to pick up waste. On Tuesday, uh, Petrero does have the Recology pickup, and the uh, subcontractor then focuses on, on Sunnydale with two truckloads, 1 a.m., 1 p.m., um, waste removals, and the staff continues to the daily cleanup. On Wednesday, the subcontractor... Ms. Pegler, I think just to move this forward a little faster, we can see the schedule. I'm sorry. Can you want me to slow down? No, I need you to speed up. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. You don't I, have to... to I see the weekly the schedule of cleanup. Very good. Thank you. So as you can see, there is regular trash, regular hauling, regular pickup, so that there isn't um, a Monday through, there is a Monday through Friday service, so that there isn't a weekly um, um, discrepancy. We also go back and do the cleanups. Uh, on one of the photos that's also incorporated in our slide, as was the authority's slide, was an ex example of the before and after of that. On our next slide, we'll talk about our uh, progress on the curb appeal and the landscaping. We actually have entered into three new contracts with landscaping services for the, for the both locations. And these are recent photos of what the condition of the properties are. We've also have, through the storms, worked with, um, in preparation of storms and after, have aging trees and very large trees that over 40 of them have been groomed or removed as touched upon. Uh, if we can move on to the next, are more photos of what the ongoing progress has been with the curb appeal and landscaping. And these are additional um, photos and shots of what the current conditions of the properties are. When it comes to the vehicle management, uh, our teams actually have been very progressive when it comes to trying to take care of the trash and the waste. 
As outlined, we work with the 311, taking uh, care of both on-property and property items, uh, or vehicles uh, that were either abandoned, um, stolen, um, whether they're, if they're residents and they're uh, not working. We work with the resident to the point where there's a method. What we want to make sure is not removing vehicles that the resident is in process of fixing a something or just waiting for a something, a part to come in, et cetera, so that their vehicles are back and operable. So we work with them on a three notice process where we give them the first notice, we allow them 72 hours, we give them a second notice, allow them another 72 hours, and after the third notice, giving them an additional 72 hours, we post a notice and at, uh, of the vehicle being towed, giving the resident in, uh, good communication and expectations of what the, um, the vehicle removal processes are. And as such, we've had 75 cars towed, and we're working through those 35 are going through that notification process on both properties. We've had progress on our vacant units with the boarded up units. Um, this is an, a daily ongoing challenge. Um, we work um, both with partner collaboration, property walks, um, our walks on the executive team on a, on a daily basis as we come. I have my executive team members that um, are from a corporate level are at the property minimally three and four days a week, depending on the property and the site and the location. And typically go, they go to both sites um, when they do come to visit so that they can ensure there's eyes on in all areas of the community. With regards to our work orders, we were experiencing a problem within our system of the work orders, which is why the scorecard was reporting what it was with the deficiency of the work order responses. We have been able to take care of that. Um, we now have a report that we work with the housing with the authority, and we do have. Um, oh, we've given them all of this, the scorecards with the dates, with adequate closeout times and dates and um, and notes that are on there. And it's, you will see it's a much different track record. It was just a problem that we needed to work, work through within our system. And as such, we've, uh, here's an example of the, the work orders that we have with uh, 1,259 work orders to date for Petrero. Um, at the end of the period of June 30, there were only 11 work orders open. With Sunnydale, we had uh, 794 closing the period with only eight work orders open and the average statistics statistics are there so as you can see it was a much bigger uh, a much different picture than what you may have experienced previously and at, at, I do want to speak to the days that were beyond the 43.8 days um, that's with us working with the permitting department trying to get permits I don't want to give the impression that immediate remedy was not taken care of yes an immediate remedy was done but the repair to the roof itself needed more capital um, um, involvement and a permitting process, which is why you see that elevated date. Our ongoing commitment is we continue to try and find uh, qualified, adequate staffing to be it. We did an exhaustive search, both with residents. We tried to bring on the hundred of the craftsmen, all of those were offered positions to be available. We um, continue to, um, con to post and screen applicants on a regular basis to continue to add to the capacity.
We also are working on tenant ledgers and reconciliation. We are working on ensuring that units pass inspection. And we, um, we have already addressed the work order system and the housing authority is now receiving those regular reports already pre-coded to the standards that we are, um, uh, have established. With regards to our community support and our commitment to the residents and the community, I want to reiterate that Eugene Berger absolutely is committed to these properties, is, is committed to the relationship building with, within the jurisdiction and municipalities to continue to build with the fire departments and the police departments. Um, that was a bit of a, that was a bit of an adjustment uh, on many levels with um, switching over from the direct reports to the housing authority for them to start recognizing EBMC. But we have gone through those learning curves and relationship building. And now we are at a point where both our, um, the fire department, building department, the, the authority, the police department, the mayor's office of housing, Shanti, CARE, Mercy, all those community services, um, are have, we have great relationships that we continue to build on on a regular basis. Even to the point where our staff are committed to the engagement uh, of, the, of the team and the community as our staff personally contributed and sponsored the CARE Program's Youth in, uh, Initiative Program for College Readiness. Uh, we have examples for you very briefly as we round out here, just some examples of what is done even while we are ready to pick up trash and in advance of trash pickup days. Our team members are going through the property and as you can see in the before and after, taking the things that the bulky items, breaking them down, getting them even ready for the vendors to be hauled away. And on this slide here, you're going to see this is a, a typical just before. The, this is within hours of each other that these photos are taken. That we have all of the, the community area is pulled together. All of the waste is combined and prepared. The bulky item comes, picks it up, trash is picked up. This is the, the, the same day before and after of trace trash services. So that is the level and volume of waste that we are removing from the property. And this is a sample property conditions for Sunnydale. And this is also something I wanted to point out, sample conditions of uh, the Mission Local uh, article. This photo was taken and published on Mission Local, but this is a, a condition of the property before that article was even published. So it's an ongoing, daily, rotating thing that we are constantly taking care of. And we do have the focus to ensure that the, the residents' needs are taken care of, the community as a whole are taken care of, and that the property is um, maintained. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now we will hear from the representatives from Bridge Housing. And I believe we have Susan Newfeld, Philip Wong, and Mitha Sashadari. How do you pronounce that last name? I'm sorry. Uh, Sashadri. Sashadri, sorry. Good afternoon. Um, thank you for inviting us to come and comment. Um, I am a senior vice president with Bridge Housing, and I'm pleased to be here with my colleagues. 
Bridge, uh, I want to start off by saying that Bridge is a, a, a really a very willing partner in the ecosystem of Potrero Hill Terrace and Annex. Currently, our primary responsibilities are for the redevelopment, the physical redevelopment of the space, of the, of the campus, as well as um, partnering with all of the existing partners on the campus, and that includes the Housing Authority, Eugene Berger, as well as the myriad of service providers that do work on the Hill. We do not have direct oversight over EBMC's scope with San Francisco Housing Authority. However, we try to partner as much as possible around the best interests of the residents. And that includes hosting a monthly community meeting where all parties are invited to attend. Uh, we have noticed since Lance joined the Eugene Berger uh, uh, team that he shows up at these community meetings, uh, as well as the San Francisco Housing Authority staff. And these are forums for residents not just to understand the, the timeline for the redevelopment, but also to express concerns and complaints about um, the experience of the redevelopment and all of its operations. And I'll just share that uh, we've had uh, several meetings where residents have expressed complaints or concerns with, to Eugene Berger, and we have found Lance to be incredibly responsive and desirous to repair the relationships. Similarly, as issues get brought to our attention, whether it's through property management at Bridge, community development, or our service partners, we forward these to Eugene Berger and San Francisco Housing Authority. We believe in the guiding principle of no wrong door, and so whether the concern is um, directly uh, targeted towards our scope of work or a, a, a member's scope of work on the campus, we make sure that we advance those concerns um, to resolution. We are here to support every stakeholder that's part of the Petrero ecosystem. This is a really challenging project. There are a lot of complex parts, a lot of complex partners, and our role is to be at the table as much as possible to lend voice um, to the experience of the redevelopment, including current property management across the campus. We believe that um, Eugene Berger is uh, making some progress as they reflected in their presentation and we believe that the Housing Authority and Eugene Berger are doing the best they can with the resources that they have. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. And now we have, are you, is that it for Bridge? Okay. Thank you. And now we have representatives from Mercy, uh, Ashley Hurst, and I know Doug Shoemaker is here as well. Thank you very much, Supervisor. I am here, and but I, although I am out at um, Sunnydale four or five days a week, four or five days a month. Sorry, um, I'm not there every day, and so I thought it'd be much more helpful to hear from our site staff that are there on a regular basis. So I want to introduce Ashley Hurst, who is our Director of Community Life. Thank you. Thank you, Doug, and good afternoon, uh, Supervisors. My name is Ashley Hurst, Director of Community Life for, for Mercy Housing. Mercy Housing Related California and our partner are partnering with residents, the city, and SFHA on the Sunnydale Hope SF. I have the privilege of supporting the Sunnydale Community Life team, which includes 40 resident services and property management professionals and youth advocates who provide trauma-informed care, services, connection, support to Sunnydale. 
We also have a team specifically positioned in, um, in a unit, 1711 Sunnydale, which provide advocacy and housing stability support for residents who live in homes managed by Eugene Berger. Over the last several years, we've opened two new buildings that include 22 homes for over 600 plus residents, and we are currently building a community center that will open next summer. We've raised $45 million for that community center and we're excited for that open, as well as 167 homes will provide retail spaces, neighborhood shops, and a wellness center in Green Grocer. Given our position in the neighborhood, we felt it was imperative for us to partner with Eugene Berger and the Housing Authority to ensure quality resident life for residents. Our team is in consistent communication with Kendra, who's our point of contract for the Housing Authority, and Lance, who's our lead for Eugene Berger. The transition from the Housing Authority to Eugene Berger has been challenging. Our team consistently meets with Lance on a weekly basis on Thursdays to have a hold a standing meeting. There we, we review resident needs and concerns. We document them um, as a form of evaluation accountability. And we also are in constant contact with them at, in regards to residents who have concerns. Our team at 1711 often meets with residents and we act as an advocate. Residents will meet with us when they have challenges understanding their lease or if there's issues with work orders not being processed or if there's general concerns about the site. And we will reach out to the Housing Authority and Eugene Berger to address those, um, those issues directly. We are witness and hear of the issues with property management on the site and we share the concerns that residents and CBO leaders convey. On the positive side, we have seen improvement recently on the following issues. Eugene Berger has become more responsive over time, especially with the transition to Lance and as they've increased their staffing and subcontractors. We also have secured the vacant units and we're scheduled for demolition next month and we, and we believe that will increase safety in the neighborhood. Unfortunately, the conditions of Sunnydale are still not acceptable. Given that the conditions of a person's neighborhood and home profoundly impacts their mental health and well-being, we believe that the following things need to be addressed. Residents report that their homes are not being properly maintained and that work orders are not being addressed in a timely manner. There are consistent issues with trash and consistent trash removal, and there's issues with landscaping and diseased trees. There also needs to be continued efforts to remove abandoned cars, which will mitigate safety and parking issues. Additionally, Philly Eugene Burr can improve their communications with residents and community members. We understand that residents' interactions with their property managers can be triggering. Therefore, it's imperative that we speak to residents with care, respect, and understanding. Going forward, we are committed with residents, the city, the Housing Authority, and Eugene Berger um, to inform them of the challenges in the neighborhood, and we want to continue to partner with our residents and our partners to ensure that the quality of life of residents will improve in Sunnydale. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. And first of all, I just want to thank everyone who... Uh, did come in to report today and you know just want everybody to understand my perspective like everybody who is in the developments working on properties um, developer contractor housing authority hope sf like you all are responsible for meeting residents needs period point blank that's the only thing i see um so you all have to figure out how to work together to make sure that resident needs are met pointing finger at another entity, um, saying what is or is not your responsibility is not something that I'm concerned about because all of you are in that position to have to meet, meet the needs. Uh, I do have a, a few questions I want to start with. Uh, the Housing Authority, Dr. Letterjew. 
I know you've talked about some improvements um, on behalf of Eugene Berger at both sites. Where does Eugene Berger stand now in terms of your, your scorecard and your last audit? So at this point, four of the five measures are met where we are seeing progress. Where we remain severely at a deficit is the reconciliation of all of our leases and um, paperwork, which is very important as it relates to the subsidy side of the house, if you will. And while, as I've said in my presentation, and as Ashley has noted, and as, as everyone has noted, there's still much work to be done. It's as simple as that, Supervisor. And I'm not going to shy away from that responsibility and the need to do that work. And I fully and wholly agree with you. There's no need to point fingers, and we're all in this work together. And the question for each and every one of us is, how are we going to get it done? Because what's most important and what is at stake is our residents. It's as simple as that for me. And so while, yes, there's progress, we're still not yet there. Do we have any proof of corrected, documented corrective action on behalf of the Housing Authority to Eugene Berger because of the lack of meeting Do we have what? I'm sorry. Proof of corrective action, proof of reprimands, anything from Housing Authority to Eugene Berger. So our corrective action requests are part of the monitoring process. It's a, it's a tool that says these things aren't being done, we need this done, we need to continue to improve in these areas, so forth and on. Part of the work on a daily basis is staff going out to the site, surveying those sites, taking pictures of those sites, and speaking to what is going on, and finding what should those solutions be to ensure these things are done. This is, it is a, a real live, on-time process on a daily basis. It's not a week, a month, it's every single day. We are having these dialogues and we are looking at what the property looks like, how work orders are flowing, and as Kendra is having meetings and Lance is having meetings as, as um, evidenced by Ashley, their conversations, though their conversations that come back to me, and we're talking about what has to happen. So this is an everyday process for this work right now, currently. But my question is, do we have any proof of them being given any corrective action? Being the corrective action is all of the dialogue and our and our reporting. But nothing written, documented. No, that's not true. The corrective action is this process. Um, this is a written process. And then, you know, I, and I, I keep hearing this from the Housing Authority and from Eugene Berger just about capacity. And you know, it's always troubling to me to have these conversations about capacity when we have residents on site, some of which are probably capable of doing the work and doing the job that Housing Authority and the property management company um, are asked to do. And I just can't for the life of me ever figure out why we can't find a way to hire residents on site to do work to take care of their community. And, you know, that's just something I, I wanted to mention. Sure, to no, you I'd like I, to address that question. I would definitely question. mention to 
Eugene Berger as well. Sure. So there is a hiring process, and currently today, from my understanding, on each side, there are currently, for both sides, two residents that have been hired. And I don't believe, from my perspective, that anyone is being precluded to hiring. And I do believe that not only were our impacted staff um, canvassed and surveyed, and I believe that was, has also been done on each of those sites. And I believe from both of our perspectives, I don't believe that Eugene Berger at any point in time is unwilling to hire staff from either of our sites. And in fact, we encourage that staff, I'm sorry, that individuals from our sites are hired by any of our contractors. It's really advantageous to do so. So I say this to Eugene Berger, John Stewart, Mercy, Related, Bridge. As someone who's worked in community, has had to hire from community, has had to come up with innovative ways and strategies to make sure community is working, there's no excuse for residents not to be fully employed on those sites. And any excuse to, or any impediment that's put in place for making that ha happen is really BS. Because at the end of the day, if you want residents working in their own community, you will figure out a way. With all the nonprofits we have, with all of the contractors we, we have, with all the folks that we have in community, you'll figure out a way to make sure that workers have an opportunity to be responsible. And, I'm, and trust me, I'm not, Put, saying this just to you, I'm saying this to everyone in the room and all of our property management companies throughout the city and county of San Francisco. I'm more than willing to have that dialogue further with anyone and to do it in a way that is appropriate. We have no problems, and I don't believe that this contractor has any issues in doing, in hiring individuals from our site. Again, I think it's important important, it's appropriate, and we will continue to work alongside our service providers to make those requests. Are there any individuals who would like to have a job? It's, it's not impossible to make it happen if there are individuals who would like to be hired by Eugene Berger. I 100% And so I speak agree. on their behalf. And, and they don't that. have to work for Eugene Berger to work in community. Um, I'm, I'm done with questions for the Housing Authority right now. Thank you, okay. Dr. Ledger, but I'm not sure if my colleagues have questions. Super sure. Supervisor Thank Stephanie. Thank you, Supervisor Walton. Uh, Vice Chair Stephanie. Thank you, Chair Preston, and thank you, Supervisor Walton, for this hearing. It's very um, actually disturbing, and um, I would love to take a look at the contract um, between Eugene Berger Management Corporation and the Housing Authority. Certainly. And, and to really understand the their contractual obligations and whether or not they're in breach of contract and what the city can do about that based on what I've read, you know, what's been presented here today, it seems like there's an abysmal failure on their part. And I am always curious, and this seems to happen with other nonprofits, I know this is not a nonprofit, that when we engage or we contract with certain entities, it's not always clear to me that they have the staff in place to do the work. And then after, when we realize there's a problem, there are staffing issues. And I don't know if that continues to be a problem or if that was a problem at the outset. And I'd like to better understand that. 
if that is a problem and you know supervisor walton talked about hiring um from the community i don't understand why we continue to engage and ask people to do work if they are not able to perform it and i wonder if that was a problem at the outset here if they had enough staffing to do the work that was envisioned obviously this is difficult work but it seems to me that there were inefficiencies at the very start of this. So Would I'll, I be correct to assume that? I'll or, have Eugene Berger answer. Thank you. To help um, understand how it came on board initially, we had the phases. So as our staffing plan initially was, was to take over the first phase, which was roughly just 200 doors. And then another 200 doors uh, was another 60 days later. And so it was an, a progressive thing. And so as we were looking to try and bring individuals on and bring people on board and staff up, we've had um, through the, a difficult period, through a hiring crisis, um, we also had a very large attrition rate where folks would, even with um, temps and agencies, would come and um, um, try and bring individuals in and be trained and have them on board and stay because it is a big task. How many do you have on staff for this particular work? Uh, there are 16, uh, 16 staff members at each property currently and it's also being augmented with um, um, temporary agencies who also are having a crisis. When you realized, when you were having issues with people quitting, or um, was there any point that you advised the city that you were having issues that you could not fulfill terms of the contract? We had regular ongoing conversations. Staffing is one of them. It is a, a weekly conversation that we have with them, and we share with them what we are doing to be able to constantly seek and what were the remedies at that point in time when you realized you didn't have the staffing to meet the needs of the residents there? What were your remedies in that moment in time? We had done our best to augment with temporary agencies and outside vendors. And so vendor contracts were put into place where, um, um, so that the, cra the craftsmen, the trash haulers, the, um, uh, those types of vendors were brought in and augmented. So services will, would continue, just not directly with employees. And did you document what you weren't able to get to based on your staffing shortages? What complaints and what, what services that remained unrendered? Were you able to document all of the complaints of mice, of rodents, of broken windows, of um, all of the issues that were coming up at absolutely the absolutely and we went through our work order system and and went through every single one of those work orders and then did perform an analysis and in your contract is it set up so that you would be paid a certain amount even if you weren't be able to perform the terms of the contract because of staffing shortages the contract is based on per occupied door so it in true fact um, Eugene Berger is paid only by the occupied door, even though we are managing 300 vacant doors on top of it. Wow. So what are, the, are there metrics in the contract that you have to fulfill in terms of meeting the needs of the residents there, or just you're paid per door no matter what? 
the RFP was written and the contract was developed so that it was it was paid on a per door flat rate. No, there are metrics in there. Okay, uh, maybe uh, just send me the RFP and send me the contract and I'll review that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie. Supervisor Mandelman. Uh, thank you, Chair President. Um, I wonder if the Housing Authority Executive Director can explain to me, because I am out of my element, what the f funding source for maintenance of Housing Authority <laughs> properties is. Like, that's probably not city general fund. Is that, is that a no. pass-through of HUD so the Housing Authority is not funded by the city and county of San Francisco. The Housing Authority is federally funded by the Fed, HUD. Which is, and, and what were the reasons in 2019 why HUD said, you're going to stop managing these properties, Housing Authority, you need to contract these out to somebody else? So the Housing Authority in 2019 of March was declared by HUD in default of its Housing Choice Voucher Program, known as, formerly known as Section 8, and its Low Public Housing Program, which is public housing. And as a result of that, it was $36 million or more in shortfall. And this is why it was mandated that those contracts, along those two programs, along with the last two standing public housing, per se, um, developments would be um, actually sent or given to a third-party contractor. And with that was a request and um, ask and requirement that the city would provide oversight. I am a city employee who is providing some of that oversight along with another individual who is the CFO um, for the organization and through the four years of work that we have been putting into this agency it is no longer in shortfall it is no longer in default this is one piece of it and yes it is a lot of work and yes it has been um, not an easy road that we are clearing how does HUD decide how much money it's giving you to pass through for maintenance on these properties um, there's a formula. I don't know the exact formula. I apologize. But, if, if you'd like to have it, I can make sure that you get it, sir. Well, I would imagine it is not, I mean, I imagine it's updated somewhat based on our labor costs and how much it would cost to employ folks, but probably, I mean, I'm going to guess without knowing that it is not a generous contract for the hiring of excellent staff in abundance to be able to provide great services to low-income folks who are living in these units and no it's not so we are hiring an outside for-profit third party to provide a service that um, HUD is you know we, we have to provide um, but we are not being given enough money possibly to do to have that work done in the way that these folks deserve um. When I look at our contract, I, what, our contract is about three mil, 30, what is it? It's three million for three years, so that's a million dollars per year. And that, the cost of that but, um, 
of that contract includes the operating budget as well. So imagine you have 72 acres, you're, ma you're managing on each site approximately live units, there are 300 on each site, about 300, along with all of the other things that are going on. Yeah, I mean, I want you, it is not acceptable for these folks to be living the way that they are having to live, but I also think it is, we just need to remember, and, and you need to be holding our contractors accountable, and I also think we need to be holding the federal government accountable to ensure that there are the funding, there is the funding for um, housing authority properties to be maintained in an adequate way. Yes. And when they're not, over time, those properties fall apart. Um, and even when we spend a lot of money to redevelop those properties and make them more usable and habitable, over time it will not work if we don't have the funding to keep those properties up. And this is, and I fully agree, and I, I believe that anyone who knows about public housing, this is partially one reason why, for the city and county of San Francisco, we've moved to RAD, as well as the very fact that moving Sunnydale and Petrel out of public housing so that it becomes project-based voucher. And as it moves to its new development, there's more funding for those new developments. And this is not, it is a transition, it's a hard transition because we remain in very old buildings while the development is occurring. And where possible, residents have an opportunity to move to a brand new unit offsite. But the fact is true and remain, is very true that part of this work is to keep community together and people having the opportunities to stay in their beloved um, spaces where they have grown for many years and have had decades of families growing there and so forth and on. So this, this whole development and transition is definitely difficult, but that does not, as you've stated, negate the fact that we do need to have a place that is livable, that is conducive for families and individuals to live in. And I, that fact does not escape me at any time and any moment because it's no different than for my own family. And I take this very personal as well as from a professional perspective as I do this work. Thank you, uh, Supervisor Mandelman. Um, and before we go to public comment, I, I just really wanted to thank um, Supervisor Walton for calling for this hearing and um, appreciate this having this discussion here. We did we had similar discussions in this committee around Plaza East previously. Um, I think, uh, from my observation, that's a, a newer. Uh, use of the Government Audit and Oversight Committee to hold hearings on some of these uh, site-specific on public housing and, and subsidized housing, and I think it's totally uh, an appropriate and good use of our time. I want to say we spend a ton of time, you know, debating the latest changes to, uh, you know, to, to permit requirements on market rate housing and to, you know, hours upon hours. Um, and meanwhile, we have folks who are living in, in public uh, and, and, or RAD converted or other forms of subsidized housing uh, who are not getting 
uh, the habitable homes they deserve and the level of service they deserve. And I think it's good. Obviously, there are hearings at the, the Housing Authority Commission and other bodies that, that look at this. Um, but I also think it's important that, that, the, that the board spends the time uh, and exercises um, some additional oversight. I will say um, that there is, um, it, it is frustrating, I think frustrating for everyone involved. And, and I think that uh, for both uh, Dr. Letigio and, and the team at Housing Authority and a lot of the folks working on this who are, you know, feel understaffed, under-resourced. I mean, I think we all fully understand, or hope we fully understand how the federal government has completely for now half a century just abandoned investment in public housing in significant ways, and we're, we're seeing the results of that. Um, that said, though, I do think it's an important point around how we resolve within that climate, how we resolve um, some of the conditions. And I will say that it's what's, I think, frustrating, I'll speak for myself, but I'm sure it's true for other supervisors, is you know, we're, we are often hearing directly from constituents, right, who, are, who have a lot of the conditions in their homes that, that, uh, that we're talking about. Um, what we're not hearing often, whether from the housing authority, the various nonprofits involved and others, are here's what we need from the mayor and the board of supervisors to solve these problems, right? So it's one thing every time we circle back on these, whether it's in our monthly meetings or in, in, in hearings, or right? Like, it is, it is not false, right, that there are, is a staffing cri crisis and a resource crisis, right? Like, that's all true. But I, I think what I just want to encourage is not to accept that as a given. Um, and I will say what's frustrating from our perspective is I think you have a board of supervisors that wants to step up. I hope you have a mayor that wants to step up and do whatever we can on these staffing and, and funding issues. Uh, certainly the board has acted, I mean, we've, and it's been very frustrating, I mean, we acted to, to, to create a fund of $20 million, for example, for public housing repairs. It's now a year later, uh, the administration has not taken a step even to issue an RFP or to get those funds out the door. So for this, for this body, where, where we do the hard work to allocate the money, and there's more we may need to do, and I just want to encourage, both encourage you um, to, and, and folks involved to be more vocal about what the needs are and how we as supervisors may be able to help in that. Because otherwise what we get is the same thing each time, which is folks talking about the, the resource constraints and working within those, but without taking, uh, without really having the proposals of how we're gonna meet those needs. And I, I appreciate you pointing out, and I do think it's especially acute in the sites that have substantial uh, problems and are, are in a period of time before an anticipated redevelopment, um, where it, it can, you know, those pose some, some additional challenges. Um, it's certainly the case at Plaza East, certainly the case at some of the sites that we're, we're discussing today. But we also need to recognize that these are multi-year processes and people are, you know, people can get sick from the conditions in their home over the course of that one, two, three, four, five years in which we're all working 
uh, hopefully collaboratively on, on redevelopment uh, or, or new uh, development plans. Um, so I, I will uh, leave it at that. And before we head to public comment, uh, Supervisor Walton. Thank you, <clears throat> Chair Preston. I apologize for alluding to the fact that I did not have a whole bunch more questions. I was just done with Dr. Lettigew at uh, the Housing Authority. Um, if we could have uh, Ms. Pegler. So I, my first question is, like, did these properties just fall at your doorstep or did you respond to a request for service? No, there was a RFP, absolutely. And so when you responded to a request for service, you said you had the ability to do certain things, I believe. Yes. And so there's a lot of information on these slides that simply say Eugene Berger is not being able to provide a quality service because of so many other elements, um, which is very problematic. But I want to talk about just some of the things. If we go to slide 13 in your presentation, I'm, I'm really interested as why you presented this slide as a positive for Eugene Berger. Because you didn't walk through the site and say, I see trash in community and let me make sure it gets picked up. That came from a direct result of an email from my office to Dr. Lettigeu. So I'm curious to know why you would put this slide on here and say, we cleaned it up magnificently quickly. This was to represent the, the, the method that the teams do, that when they go through the property, they're picking up, they're bagging trash, they're bringing it to the central location, and then it's... Ah, you see this as a positive. That's the problem. We, are, we have a different view of what's positive in and for community. A scene like this should not be happening at the site. And this is not a positive thing. And I really want to make sure we, we pull slide 13 up. Because that now I understand where the problem lies. What we think quality service for residents is different than what Eugene Berger thinks quality service for residents. This is not positive. I don't feel that it's a positive either. It's just was representative of the trash on the day. And, and it, that was removed. So I, I noticed you, you stated that there was an average for making maintenance responses, which was a pretty good average in terms of response. What's the longest time period residents have had to wait for maintenance re requests to be met? The one that was represented, the outside, the, if we can pull up the slide, you have the matrix, both the minimum and the maximum times there. Under work order slides. What was the maximum? There you go. This is this averages. This is the n average number of days to close work orders, both for Potrero and for Sunnydale. And so the maximum was. I don't see forty-three days. Forty-three point eight days was the maximum involving a roof re repair. Um, and we know for a fact that the information reported now, 2.7 and one day average to close work orders is actually in place now? Correct. Um, 
What specific steps are you taking to address the trash in Sunnydale? I saw the schedule for PH, I think, and you talked about the changes that are being made, but most certainly what you're presenting here at this hearing and what I still hear from residents, particularly on Sunnydale around trash, is not, it's not gelling. Sunnydale is the, is the community that has the under uh, the, the 141 bins that are being delivered, it's predominantly Sunnydale that are being delivered by Recology. And we've conducted that audit, we've held them to task, we've asked for them to be delivered, we've, they've given us a commitment by the end of this month to be delivered. So we're, we're hoping that that dramatically reduces the, um, the offset that is having to be you done. You do by understand contract. telling me that we're waiting for recology is very unacceptable. What I'm saying is. You're saying that we're, we have a Sunnydale trash issue because recology hasn't delivered certain things. That's not my concern. What are you going to do to make sure that the trash is clean, picked up, and maintained until recology comes or until Superman comes? What are you going to do to make sure that? the residents are taken care of. I'm unconcerned about where Recology is is not delivering because our contract in this case is with Eugene Berger. Correct, correct. And what we have is we have vendors that are there now and the vendors are hauling on a regular basis. Um, I, I just have to say this because you know, now I'm going over to Patrol Hill and there was a fire on the hill and it led to the tragedy of a death in one instance and I visited the scene visited the fire and the first thing a representative from Eugene Berger wanted to do was try to hide the fact that there was a loss of life at the site so and supervisor Walton please real if quick, I may Dr. Letter, you know, I, I'm sorry but we have no. a lawsuit and I just we have an ongoing investigation. I understand that, but okay, I still, I have, a, I still sure. have a job okay. to do. You don't have to respond, okay. but I, I still have a job respectful. to do. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, but it was a loss of life. Um, and when I had conversations about what was happening and taking place on site, because you talk about these inspections happen, happening frequently to make sure that we don't have folks living in units or what the response is to do when we do have folks li living in units that um, are unhoused. Are these inspections happening how often? And what is the proof of these inspections taking place? Our teams walk the properties every single day. And as they're walking the properties, as they see anything that looks as if it's been compromised or somebody has gotten into a back door, they go into it. The frequency of uh, just very recently, we had a unit that required police involvement. Um, those individuals were trying to get four times in one day. They had to be trespassed by the fire department, by the police department in a unit. So I just, I do want you to know, I met with housing authority after this, after this particular incident and they didn't report to me that you were making these inspections every single day. So somebody is, somebody is not being accurate in it with their, their updates and their reporting. So at that very moment in time, it was not happening, occurring every day, because as I explained to you in our conversation, 
we required and needed the help of SFPD. And that continues to be true. We work with limited resources as it relates to having that help come on site. And as I explained in our conversation, the reason that we had to have SFPD is because staff have been accosted by individuals who do not have legal um, rights to be in our units. And so we have a safety concern, not just for the staff, but we also have a safety concern for individuals who illegally enter into our units. And it really is a very hard um, balance about how we board, what types of materials we use in boarding because of the very incident that you have just mentioned about a death of someone who did not legally have rights to be in that unit. And that is a loss of life and it is important. And this is what we as a housing authority are faced with and we are balancing each and every day as we speak about these vacant units, sir. Uh, and is the, necess the necessity of having an officer on site or police department on site about inspecting or about removal? No, it's around removal, safety, safety reasons. So, so we can't inspect without PD on site? We, can, we inspect them, but we cannot remove people safely. And we, if, if a unit has been accessed, we have no way of removing those individuals that are there. And that is very important, is the removal of those units and keeping them boarded up each and every day. And we've used very many, many methodologies to do so. So I definitely don't want to go in circles, but I, I think the, the main thing that I want to just come out from this hearing is that we have a contractor in place that failed to meet objectives. We have communities where folks' quality of life are, are not being addressed because the contractor has not been delivering. And so we need to make sure that that doesn't continue to happen. We're having conversations about changes and things that have been instituted and implemented, but also we also need proof that these changes and, and these, these things are improving for residents because there's a lot of miscommunication across departments and on behalf of residents of what is and what is not actually happening on site. So I just have one more question just in terms of uh, Mr. Wittenberg's role. Are you at both sites or just in, on Petrel Hill? And Ms. Pegler, if, if I'm correct, did you say you have approximately 16 people at each site? Correct. So that's the average ratio from just my math, which was never my best subject, of about one to 20 staff members per resident. It would seem to me that that is a formula for success. Um, and so something is not gelling because if you have a staffing ratio of one to 20, we should see some miraculous objectives being met at, at the sites. And so I just wanna, I do wanna say that. Um, Chair, Chair Preston, I, I think at this point we can, we can go to public comment unless you all have any more questions. Thank you, Supervisor Walton. Let's go ahead and open this item up for public comment.
Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number two here joining us in the chamber? Please line up along the curtain wall to your right. For the members that are calling in, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. Good for afternoon. those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. You may begin. Thank you. I'm Stella Scott. I'm 75 years old. I was conceived and born in Betrayal Hill. The bull crap that I've heard here today is unacceptable. I, lived on, I live on Turner Terrace. There is trash all over. They mow, they do whatever they want, but they leave it there. I have been harassed for almost nine years by one neighbor in my unit. Now my friend that lives at the other end is being harassed too. There is no vehicles being removed that needs to be removed from Turner Terrace. I was almost attacked by the drug addicts. If it wasn't for the Parrot Transit, I would have been hurt. So I call Parrot Transit and I told them, I can't meet them on Missouri. I can't meet them in the middle of Turner Terrace. They have to come to my house and get me. It's terrifying to know all the tenants on Turner Terrace is terrified of the drug addicts, of the excess cars, of people not cleaning up Turner Terrace. In the back of my building, they mowed it, but they left the trash there. In front, I've got an iPad that I've been taking document pictures of. Now, I'm the president of the Betrayal Hill Association, and I have to deal with the tenants there. And they know what I'm going through racially. I have talked to Housing Authority. I have talked to Bridge. I have talked to Eugene Berger. I have gotten nowhere, no help, no time. And to get anything done in your house, you just might as well sit down and wish, pray in one hand and crap in the other because you're not going to get done. I have asthma, high blood pressure. My back bedroom door to the balcony gets mold every two months. In my family, there's cancer. I have to deal with the contaminated place that is going to have mold in. And I'm not moving. No way in God's earth am I going to move. But you need to take a closer look at the bullcrap that they said. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Uh, my name is Farida McCoy, and I've been a Sunnydale uh, resident for 52 years. Um, Mr. Walton, he basically answered, uh, asked all the questions that, and the concerns that I had. However, um, with Lance over there, he's trying, but he needs more manpower. Um, as far as the equipment, they don't have enough materials to keep up the place. They don't know the zones real well, so they're they all in, in a pack cleaning up one area. So they don't really know the area real good, so they need to um, get trained about that. You know, and as far as the one truck that's over there, that's not enough to clean up all the, to pick up all the trash. It's like they have a U-Haul truck that they rent at night, and then they have another truck that goes around, I think once or twice a week. But that's not enough. Um, another concern I had was about the, um, she said, where's she at? Well, I don't know her name, but anyway, she said that she put money into the, um, the gardens over there, um, the um, funding for the gardens. I lost my job um, June the 30th, so I don't know how she put funding into the gardens over there for the, um, for work for the um, residents and stuff like that. We do need more work for the residents. They're, they're not trying to hire us. They, don't, they never asked us, to, um, did we want to get hired or any of the other residents and stuff like that. However, as far as the cleanup, 
is, it is bad. But like I said, he don't have enough manpower or train them or have them trained enough to know where the zones are to pick up the trash. They don't have enough equipment. They, they're using a picker and a bag instead of having garbage cans and stuff like that. So um, like I said, Mr. Walton basically asked all the questions and concerns that we had that I was coming down here to speak on. So um, that's basically it for me right now. Um, as far as the um, Eugene Burger management, like I said, Lance, he's trying, he does be out there, he's trying, but it's not enough. And like I said, the workers that's out there, they don't know what they're doing because they don't know the zone. So they all in like 30 in one pack in one area. So they can't keep everything clean because they all together. They not really spread it out. Thank you. So that's a problem. Thank you for your public comment. Okay, thank you. Next speaker, please. elaborate on that $20 million that you were talking about. Okay, I got that one in. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Azuri. I'm with the CARE program and slash I'm a great-grandmother and a resident of Petrol Hill. So real quick, um, before Lance got there, the person that was there before him was not hiring residents and she was sabotaging and pitting residents, I mean service providers against service providers. Lance, since Lance has been there, things have gotten better. We can talk offline of what he's trying to do with the unhoused residents. Also, the beautification that is being allowed to happen up there in Patrol Hill. Um, and then also the trash was really bad. Ms. Um, Stella is correct. It was really hard. It took them over a year to get a man out the utility room who was locked himself in and that he was um, terrorizing residents. Things were bad, but they are getting better. Everybody forgot about the lady who lost her life at 1101, which we never had that meeting. So I don't understand how anybody's scorecard passed when 1101 has garbage that was piled up to where the residents can't even put the garbage inside to, uh, into the chutes. And a woman died because the alarm system kept going off. You never have a meeting about that. You're having this meeting about EMBMC, but they inherited a lot of stuff. Yes, they need more trucks. Yes, they need to be able to hire more people. Um, and it was said before that they couldn't hire any residents. That's what the person before him did say. Now, I do know that he just worked with a man and got him to where he can be hired on. I'm talking really fast because I only have two minutes. Um, I'd like to send you a long list. You all should come to the resident meeting that's going to happen at 1101 next Thursday, which is the community meeting. So if you really care and you're having this meeting, if you really want to hear from residents, bring, bring your behinds to the meeting at 1101, which starts at 6 o'clock or 5 o'clock? 6 o'clock at 1101, and then you will be able to hear from residents. But we really do want to know about that $20 million for public housing that you were talking about. Yes, more residents do need to be hired. There are residents that are willing to work. We are able to, because of EBMC and Housing Authority, we've been able to do a lot of beautification in Patrol Hill, and I know they want to do that in, in Sunnydale as well. Thank so, you for your comments it, today. I yep. apologize for the so interruption. It's not where it should be, but it's damn sure not where it used to be. So therefore, you guys need to come out. I apologize for the interruption. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Board of Supervisors. First, I want to thank you guys for calling this hearing and uh, finally letting it be known that the city is paying attention to what's going on over in Sunnydale. I just hate that it had to be under these circumstances to get everybody to focus. I will say that this was a bigger problem. It's an accumulation of uh, decades of things, and the trash is just the final black eye to the face. We have decrepit facilities, violence, we're the leaders in squatters,
all kind of crime. We have mold. We have old pipes. And part of this stuff that I hope the rebuild that's going on will help alleviate in terms of bringing better facilities and morale up. But I think the transition was underestimated in terms of the scope of work. People were overwhelmed. Everybody wasn't listening at first. However, I know Kendra Crawford will pop up on the site at the drop of a phone call from the housing authority and walk the grounds and greet the squatters and tell them the things that they need to do to get the resources. Ashley Hurst is out there every day. We're on the ground, but it's just a bigger problem. And it's like trying to repair a big building with just a piece of tape. It's not going to work overnight. But I can say that the people in this room can make it better. And I believe that they will make it better. But now that you guys are paying attention, it will change. I just need more follow-up and um, the supervisors to be a little more vigilant and holding accountable the contracts and the things that are being negotiated that the residents are impacted by. So I trust the entities in place, and I'm being optimistic when I say the ball is in your court to follow up to continue this ball so it can roll the right way and everybody can win. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. While we transition, if I need to cut you off, I apologize. We are allotting two minutes per speaker. If you have any additional information to share with the committee, please email them to me, the committee clerk, at stephanie.gabrera at sfgov.org. Thank you. You may begin. Thank you, Stephanie. I got your email. I'm recording you at home, so just want to know I will be emailing you. Um, my name is Siobhan Hunter, and in this space, I would like to acknowledge I am a legacy member of the Patrol Hill Residents um, in public housing. I am a product of Betrayal Hill public housing and that so from speaking from 53 years That's how old I am of experience. I've never seen Betrayal Hill look the way it has been looking ever and that um, transitions have happened a lot of times um, There has always been illegal dumping in Betrayal Hill the level of neglect that is allowed is why uh, the Illegal dumping continues and on a scale it happens because we're not really paying attention to the physical space that these, our people and my people live. I also wanna share that, as Larry said, that this is much bigger than just uh, the, legal, the illegal dumping. Um, this thing that we call the Hope SF, the Hope SF transition and, and turning these buildings into a beautiful space. But if we are not pouring into the residents that live in those spaces, if we're not addressing the trauma and the harm that has happened for generations, um, and for the last 10 years, Hope SF has been a, the lead in this transition, um, we're, we're, we're only putting tape on a building's problem. We're only using tape and I'm talking uh, masking tape, I'm not even talking building tape. So again, if we're not looking at the larger scope of what exactly are happening, and not only Patrol Hill and Sunnydale, but also the transition for Hunters Point and for Alice Griffiths, also known to community as Double Rock, it is a bigger problem. So my ask, he said I ask, is to actually look at what is the, where are we at the Hope SF 10 year mark, because it was 10 years last year, and, and figure out what is working and what's not working, thank you. Thank you for your comments today, Ms. Hunter. Are there any other speakers in the chamber? Please feel free to line up now if you'd like to speak, and you may proceed. Thank you. Good afternoon, supervisors. I'm Drew Jenkins. 
Uh, I think the biggest thing, one of the biggest things with the trash is that um, as we transition to the new homes, the people that still in the, the old homes shouldn't have to transition with the trash sitting on the streets all day and they pick up trash like once a week. So this trash is just sitting on the, on the block and kids got to walk by it and the pipes and stuff is bad already. That doesn't have anything to do with Eugene Burger. We have sewage flowing down the street. Our kids are going in and out of our little centers and our buildings. And this is not a concern. And it's not, it should be something that should be immediate uh, concern. This was actually brought to the attention to uh, people 10 months ago. And like uh, Larry said, um, this is probably overwhelming for them. They didn't realize this was a, 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 as big of a project that it was going to be. But please don't lie to us about what's being done and we sit here and we be in the community every day. That's the biggest thing. That's even more hurtful to the people that's in the community is when we being lied to in our faces. You telling us what the community looks like and we know it don't look like uh, what is being said to the supervisors up here. Don't lie to our face. Make sure we find a way to make sure that we can get the trash up and talk to the people that's from the community that can help get the trash from outside of our community while we make this transition from the new, from the old to the new, but don't lie to us. Thank you for your comments today, Mr. Jenkins. Are there any other speakers here in the chamber that would like to speak to this item before we go to our call-in members? No additional speakers here in the chamber. We currently have eight callers with four in the speaking queue. May we please have the first caller? Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Naj Daniels. I'm also a long-term resident of Patrol Hill. I'm comment calling and commenting to ask this body to hold all of the stakeholders accountable. Families are suffering. Children are suffering. Residents are being overcome by rodent infestations, living next to vacant apartments that are health hazards and breeding grounds for violence and crime. It hasn't always been this way. But when we have community-based organizations that want to step in to help provide solutions, we are silenced. And we're just saying enough is enough. I like the photo that was shared, but I personally am in Patrol Hill every single day. And I've never seen it cleaned up that nicely. It feels like the goal is to further push out the residents through undesirable living conditions and to only affect change substantial change once the mixed income families that will be marketed to have arrived. I'm forever grateful to Supervisor Walton for always calling out inequities in our communities and lifting them up so that they can be addressed. I'm asking that you address them. I can see the rest of my time. Thank you for your comments today. May we please have the next caller. Uh, good morning or good afternoon now, supervisors. Uh, this is Roisin Eisner from Tenants Union again. Um, I'm speaking now because we routinely encounter complaints from residents about the inadequacy of services in Petro Hill and Sunnydale. I also happen to live in the brick homes next to Sunnydale. This is my neighborhood and these are my neighbors. Um, we've seen the same trash bags sitting for collection for as much as six months without pickup. Uh, I've been in neighbors' homes that have holes in their walls and windows that are left to residents to manage. There 
there are several units I'm aware of without functioning heating that can reach hazardously low temperatures for children in the home. Uh, the children's play area in Sunnydale is unusable. All the swings are broken. There's zero maintenance. Those is extensive, and as I think you've heard today, uh, frustration with Eugene Berger is very overwhelming. Um, in terms of resident employment, I've done significant door-to-door -door outreach in my career. If Eugene Berger staff are walking the communities as frequently as has been said, I don't understand why a more robust outreach program hasn't happened. Um, it's not that challenging. Uh, further, uh, given the level of interaction with tenants regarding concerns, um, these are also engagement opportunities to promote these programs. So it seems strange to me that this isn't happening. Um, and I, I don't want to be harsh, but I am a little disturbed that Eugene Berger, as a contracted property manager of a beloved, of two beloved public housing communities, um, has expressed a lack of faith in public housing. You know, maintenance will continue to be a need, even in newly developed units. As we saw with Plaza East, any new units we develop will deteriorate if we continue to have incompetent management. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your comments. We currently have eight callers in this queue with two in the speaking queue. Apologies. May we have the next caller. You're muted. You're unmuted. May we please have the next caller? It appears that line is unattended. May we go to the next caller and we'll circle back to the unattended line. Okay, it appears that they're unable to meet the caller. May we please go to the first unattended line and we'll try that again. Hello? We can hear you. Hello. Wonderful. My name is Hattie Wyatt. I am a um, community advocate and workforce um, partner in Betrayal Hill. I'm here just to echo some of my community partners' concerns and um, voices that you've heard before me and residents as well of how they're impacted by this condition and living environment throughout this construction phases. Just to keep mindful in the board and the legislation, be mindful that families are impacted, children are impacted, households. You know, and it's just a lot more needs to be done. As far as community, if you invest in the community and work with the community, we can help find a solution with the community. You have to make sure that we're part of the conversation as well as the solution. With that being said, we need to see more residents on site taking advantage of these opportunities. Open them up to us, you know, make us part of it. And that's kind of what all I have to say. But in order for us to be impactful and to see some change, you got to let us be part of it and stop just telling us what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you very much for your comments today. If you are intending to speak to this item and you are on the line, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. If you have already dialed star three and are waiting to be unmuted, please dial star three again to lower your hand and then dial star three again to raise your hand to see if that resets. We're attempting to unmute. A caller, 
Hey, thank you. We have one caller left in the queue. May we please have the caller? Yes. Hi, my name is Shelly Leonard, and I'm a resident of Sunnydale. I have two things that I am concerned about. I am concerned about the lights on Santos and Blythefield. I'm concerned about the lights on the building. It's hecka dark when you get off the bus and you have to walk up the hill. And then two, I would like to speak about a ledger. I requested a ledger back in January for the YMCA, and Eugene Berger sent a ledger stating that I owe $19,000 back pay and rent, and then I requested another one in June. Now it's up to $22,000, and I'm concerned about that because that's going to affect my credit, and I want to know how come the ledger is not being corrected or sent out the way it should be. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. We've had another caller join. Next caller, please. Hi, I'm a resident of Patrol Hill Annex, and I'm just calling to sense my frustration about um, the impact of the trash in the area, um, continued leases being given, our information being lost, um, having to report to different offices, no one communicating. Um, it's almost like the blind is leading the blind. Um, we just need a clean wash and have a new start of, of, of staff take over. It, it's, it's sad. As we speak now, the development is nasty. You walk around, you look, it is gross. Thank you. Thank you very much for your comments. We're checking to see if there are any additional callers. And there are no additional callers in the queue. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Supervisor Walton. Thank you so much, Chair Preston. And before I just say some concluding marks, I do just have one big question for the developers. Uh, and as you come up, you can hear the question. But I know Mercy and Bridge both have resources for services in Sunnydale and Patrol Hill. How are those resources being used? How much of your own resources are being used? And are you hiring people from community? Uh, thanks for the question, Supervisor Walton. I'm just going to make sure I heard it back. Um, what resources do we have that are being used relative to this, the issues that have been flagged today? Well, really, this also just kind of report back of, you know, what, okay, what sure. services you're providing. Yeah, so um, thanks to partnership with the city, we do have a pretty um, robust team of folks that include a number of residents that have been hired uh, over time and continue to be on staff in that role of um, th that Ashley described earlier, which is some of them are involved in the housing stabilization work, which would involve issues like the ones that were mentioned earlier by one of the callers. If someone comes forward with a problem with their lease, um, if it's something that we can handle without the help of legal aid, our staff are advocates and help with that work. If we need to bring in a legal aid attorney, we, we uh, make referrals to folks with, with more skilled training in that regard than we have. Um, we are also there to work, I think as Ashley mentioned, with residents as they deal with issues, both with our own buildings, uh, with the property management there, but also with Eugene Berger. So those weekly meetings that are occurring. In terms of, um, 
hiring residents. The other principal area, obviously, is in construction. Um, we work to, to train and hire folks onto the construction crews, not, for, not that work for Mercy, but obviously work for the general contractors on site. I believe there's a training coming up uh, relatively soon for the latest round of work. Um, that's not going as well as I think we would like it to go, but I think we are taking steps to kind of move it in a better direction. Uh, I think that there are opportunities, as you've described, for um, community-based organizations, not necessarily Mercy, but other community-based organizations, to work with Eugene Berger and the Housing Authority to remedy some of these issues. My personal view is I think that there is a model out there um, similar to the way Green Streets works at um, Plaza East and other locations like that, where you have entities or agencies that have deep familiarity with residents and the issues that may affect them that are not super obvious to those of us that don't live in the neighborhoods, um, to hire them indirectly through those um, social enterprises to deal with issues like the ones that are being laid out before. Um, I think we've had some conversations about that at Sunnydale. I think there's real opportunity there. I'd like to see it move forward on some of these issues. Um, Mercy probably spends anywhere between $400,000 and $700,000 a year of our own money um, on the projects, this is despite the fact that there is um, a lot of support from the Mayor's Office of Housing and others, um, but the tasks ahead of us are, are just much larger than um, the funding that's been made available. And I think Supervisor Preston, you, sort of, you asked earlier why we haven't come to the Board of Supervisors, and I would just say that generally speaking, um, we've, we've made our request directly to Hope SF and the Mayor's Office of Housing. I don't know what's been communicated to you. I will just say that I think you know, we're about to open a very large community center that Supervisor Walton was instrumental in securing the capital from the city for, along with the mayor. Um, we raised $30 million in private funds for that, including over $7 million from Mercy Housing Board and staff, um, private contributions, as well as a corporate contribution from Mercy Housing. So I'd like to think, Supervisor, that we are really trying to match the expectations that you have in terms of, and the others, in terms of really putting our full effort behind it. Um, I think as we open this community center, which I think is gonna be a really important piece along with the new recreation center that you helped to secure funding for, I think one of the key things is gonna be making sure that those operating hours are extensive. Um, as you know from personal experience, there's not been a gym in Visitation Valley for residents as far as I know ever. Uh, Larry and Drew, who both testified, told me that as teens they advocated around this issue or at least I believe Drew and his brother did. Um, so this is the first time we're gonna have a gym in the neighborhood. I know Reckon Park is incredibly committed to that, but I think the other piece of it is just making sure that we have adequate support for the community center. It is gonna have a greatly expanded Boys and Girls Club. They put a lot of money into that effort as well. We're gonna quadruple the number of spaces in the Boys and Girls Club for, the, for youth in the community. And I think one of the key things going forward is to be able to work with city departments to make sure that there's support Behind that, I, I really wish that there were more um, private individuals and foundations that were interested in supporting the work in the Southeast and in particularly in Visitation Valley and Sunnydale, but um, it has been hard actually to find philanthropy that is um, as committed to that part of town as some other parts of town. And, that, and I'm really appreciative of all the ones that have stepped forward, um, but what would be fantastic is to see more of it and I think for us to really fulfill the promise that Hope SF has made to these neighbors, I think we're gonna need to continue a real mix of public and private support. Um, 
just because I think the needs are profound. I think they're multi-generational and I think they're the, they're not just the, the ones that we've talked about today, but they're, they're the um, trauma-related issues that have come about for generations of violence. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. Hi, Supervisor Walton, Chair Preston, Supervisor Stephanie. Um, I, I want to start off by saying that, you know, I listened very intently. Um, I was a former project manager with the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, and I had the opportunity to work on the implementation of Sunnydale Hope SF and Petrero Hope SF on the city side. And when I got the opportunity to move and work with Bridge um, to be their director of development, um, after what was a clear change of staff because this work is very challenging, right? And, I, and Supervisor Watson, I will get to your question about sort of what are what are Bridges services, what are, what are the provisions that they provide, and I think they, they very closely match what Sunnydale has described. Um, I think except for the fact that we, we partner closely with community-based organizations uh, to, to meet the needs of residents, and obviously there's tons of work to be done on that front. Um, I would say that we have a, we have a master loan with with the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development um, in order to work with the Shanti project and also with CARE and Stand in Peace um, with uh, Mrs. Uri Peace Green. And I will eventually meet Mr. Von Hunter of, of Stand in Peace to, to help us collectively engage in that shared responsibility um, to meet everything that has been outlaid today. Um, I think that, you know, I've, I've stepped into this role and our focus is on moving forward with the development project, but we don't see that as inseparable from um, what's necessary in terms of community development. Our responsibility to the residents is always the primary goal. Um, and I think even uh, Dr. Lettage, you put it, it's a, it's a balancing act. Um, and, and, but it's not one that allows us to shirk that responsibility ultimately where, where our priority is with, uh, with resident concerns. Um, and, you know, Actually, Sirius Walton, do you mind if, if you if you repeated the questions exactly? You, that you, you got to for? everything except for what what's the investment um, that what's Bridges' own investment? Bridges' own investment uh, currently. I mean, there was a recent trip to Washington D.C. with um, a number of Petro Hill dollar youth. figure dollar figure. Uh, I don't have a dollar figure for now, but I will provide that to your office. Um, uh, we'll, we'll follow up separately by email if that's all right. I mean, we have quarterly meetings with um, with with your staff, uh, which is you know we're looking for those various touch points with all of our partners, including the city. Um, and I think we're we're you know I, I want to provide those facts and figures. Um, I'm sorry that I wasn't prepared to to respond to that today, but I I would definitely have that to you. Thank by you. Email. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And. I just want to start off by saying it's ultimately the responsibility of the housing authority and, of course, the leadership of the city to ensure that our public housing residents are taken care of and to make sure that Eugene Berger does their job uh, or they should not be serving our families. We've made so many strides in our public housing communities, particularly with all the new revitalized housing at the Hope SF sites, and we cannot allow a bad actor to set our residents and communities back. I do want to thank everyone who came in to report today and really just need to see the commitments that have been made here today turn into concrete improvement for our residents. I want to give a big thank you to our residents who came out uh, and spoke today and advocated on behalf of themselves and, and their communities and 
I do want to thank the service providers, the developer, and of course uh, the housing authority for coming in and reporting and just want to make sure that we're honest about where things stand, honest about the work that needs to be done so that we can move forward and provide community with the quality of life services that they deserve. Uh, I am looking forward to meeting more with some of the folks on the ground and having more conversations about how we can be helpful uh, because I definitely see it, of course, of our office responsibility to make sure things are happening and doing what we can to provide the support to make sure our residents have their needs met, but we also have to be real about what exists and what has happened so we can move forward. Uh, we'll be asking the Housing Authority to provide a quarterly status report on Eugene Berger and the developers so that we can track progress and guarantee that improvements are being made. And I would love for this committee to continue this hearing to the call of the chair. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Supervisor Walton, and thank you again for your leadership on this and for calling the hearing, and thanks to everyone who presented and came out to speak um, on this item. I'd like to move to continue this item to the call of the chair on that motion, Madam Clerk. Thank you, and on that motion, Vice Chair Stephanie? Aye. Stephanie, aye. Member Mandelman? Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes, and Madam Clerk, please call uh, item three. Item number three is a hearing on strategies for apartment building fire prevention and support for victims, including current city protocols and resources available for those facing displacement and requesting the San Francisco Fire Department and the Human Services Agency to report. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item and are viewing remotely should call the public call-in number scrolling across your screen and enter the meeting ID when prompted. If you've already dialed in and haven't done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have been, you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you've been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk and colleagues. Um, I'm going to move to continue uh, this hearing. Um, we, at the request of the fire marshal, was unfortunately not available uh, and able to be here today, but has been in close contact with our office. So we're looking forward to getting this uh, on calendar uh, after the August recess. Uh, and we would like to open this up for any public comment on the continuance, Madam Clerk. Thank you. Are there any members of the public here in the chamber that would like to speak on the continuance of this item? Please line up along the curtain wall to your right. For those on the line, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. We currently have zero speakers in the chamber and zero speakers online. There are no speakers. Thank you. Public comment is on this item is closed. Um, and I'd like to move to continue this hearing to the call of the chair. Thank you. And on the motion to continue this item to the call of the chair, Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Member Mandelman? Aye. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. And Madam Clerk, please call item four. Item number four is a motion directing the budget and legislative analyst on a priority basis to audit the Public Utilities Commission's water and water, wastewater enterprises, rate setting, and contract oversight processes with a focus on reducing rate increases. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item and are viewing remotely should call the public call-in number scrolling across your screen and enter the meeting ID when prompted. If you're already on the line, please dial star 3 to be added to the speaker queue and wait for the system prompt to state that you have been unmuted. Thank you.
Thank you, Madam Clerk. This item is sponsored by Supervisor Safai. Uh, it was heard last week and continued to today. Uh, his Chief of Staff, uh, Bill Barnes, is joining us today. Mr. Barnes, the floor is yours. Uh, Chair Preston, members of the committee, uh, thank you for hearing this item. In the interest of brevity, uh, let me just thank the Chair and his staff for working with us. This audit wouldn't be able to begin until spring of next year, even if we were able to uh, get it organized. And so what we would like to request today uh, is a continuance to the call of the Chair, and we will continue to work with the Chair's office audit. I would just also note that a coalition of environmental organizations submitted a letter in support. Uh, we will continue to work with them uh, on their policy issues separate and apart from this audit request, and would thank the committee uh, for its help. Thank you, Mr. Barnes, um, and we look forward to continuing uh, to work with Supervisor Safai and, and get the uh, oversight that I know he, he's seeking here. Um, and why don't we go ahead and open this item or the, uh, open the request for continuance uh, to, uh, uh, for public comment. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public here in the chamber that would like to speak on the continuance of item number four? For those on the line, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. If you are viewing remotely, please dial the call-in number scrolling across your screen and enter the meeting ID when prompted. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait for the system to indicate that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Seeing no speakers in the chamber, we currently have five callers on the line with one in the speaking queue. May we please have the caller? Eileen Bogan will speak in support. Speak is also strongly urging the GAO to instruct the BLA to audit the PUC beyond rate increases. Rate increases are the symptom, not the root cause. How the uh, PUC conducts its business and spends its capital dollars has a direct impact on rate increases for customers, including city departments such as Rec and Park. How the PUC stores water in wet years and dry years has a direct impact on the capital spending. Capital spending has a direct impact on rate increases. To avoid a never-ending cycle of rate increases, speaking urges the GAO to instruct the BLA to audit the following. Capital projects, uh, contracting procedures, and cost controls going back at least seven years. The legality of the PUC's use of Easter bonds based on state law. The filing of lawsuits against the state agency without authorization by the PUC commission. The PUC's water management policies compared to other municipal utilities, including uh, water management in both wet and dry years, also known as the design drought. The accuracy of the PUC's water demand projections versus actual demands going back at least seven years. Going back 10 years, what years has the PUC raised rates and by what percentage? For in the next 10 years, what years does the PUC uh, anticipate raising rates again and by what percentage? Thank you. Thank you for your comments today, Eileen Boken. May we please have the next caller? Good afternoon. This is Peter Dreckmeyer, Policy Director for the Tuolumne River Trust. Public opinion surveys have shown that the biggest driver for people to conserve water is to benefit the environment. So people are shocked when I tell them that conserving water in the SFPUC service area provides very little benefit to the Tuolumne River. This is because during droughts, the SFPUC only releases 
the required minimum base flow. The water people conserve is hoarded behind dams and then has to be spilled in wet years like this one. During the recent three-year drought, the SFPUC never had less than four years worth of water in storage, and the maximum that can be stored is six years worth. This year, the SFPUC was entitled to more than 10,000, or I'm sorry, 10 years worth of water, but had no place to put it because the reservoir is filled early in the season. Now the SFPUC is projecting they might need to develop 92 million gallons per day of very expensive alternative water supplies, such as recycled water. This would cost about $300 million per year, but the water won't be needed. Like conserved water, the SFPUC would be forced to spill it in wet years. We strongly encourage you to audit the SFPUC's drought planning scenario, known as the design drought. This would be very straightforward and quite easy. We could provide all the evidence that the design drought needlessly harms the environment and ratepayers, and the SFPUC could provide any evidence they have that the design drought is prudent. There isn't much. We really need a judge to weigh all the evidence. A big problem with the SFPUC is the commissioners are not elected, so there isn't much pressure to represent the values of their constituents. All too often, they defer to staff who don't provide the best value for San Franciscans. We desperately need the Board of Supervisors to intervene and lead the city on a path towards sustainability and affordable rates. Thank you for considering our request for an audit of the design drought. Thank you for your comments. We're checking to see if there are any additional callers in the queue. There are no additional callers. Thank you. Public comment on this item is now closed. Um, I'd like to move to continue this item to the call of the chair. Thank you. And on the motion to continue this item to the call of the chair, Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie, I, Member Mandelman. Mandelman, I, Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, I, you have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Uh, and Madam Clerk, please call items uh, five through nine for closed session. Thank you. Today's closed session agenda is comprised of items five through nine, which are three ordinances and two resolutions authorizing and approving various settlements of lawsuits or unlitigated claims. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on these items and are viewing remotely should dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. For those in the chamber, please line up along the curtain wall to your right, and we'll go to you and go to public comment. Seeing no in-person speakers, we'll go to our dial-in line. There are zero callers in the speaking queue. Thank you. Public comment on the closed session items is now closed. Uh, and on the motion to convene in closed session, please call the roll. On the motion to convene in closed session, Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie I, Member Mandelman. Mandelman I, Chair Preston. Aye. Preston I, you have three ayes. Thank you. We'll now convene in closed session. You're muted.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
We are now back in open session. We're now back in uh, open session. Thank you for your patience while we were away. Ma uh, Madam Clerk, please report on our closed session deliberations. Today in closed session, the committee motioned to recommend items five through nine to the full board with a positive recommendation. Thank you, um, and I'd like to move to, uh, to uh, keep the closed session deliberations <laughs> closed. <laughs> Thank you, and on the motion to not disclose closed yeah. session deliberations, Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie, I, Member Mandelman. Mandelman, I, Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, I, you have three ayes. Thank you, and any further business before the committee? There's no further business before the committee. Then we are adjourned. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're muted. Thank <laughs> you.